nightmare. Barbara Stanwyck, chained to a deep, dangerous secret. Edward G. Robinson, under compulsion to kill. Betty Field, wanting yet fearing love. Robert Cummings, taking beauty where he found it. Robert Benchley, who tried not to be afraid. Thomas Mitchell, who peered into the awesome future. Charles Winninger, Anna Lee, C. Aubrey Smith, Dame May Whitty, Edgar Barrier, in a drama of love, of hate, of terror, of volcanic emotions that changed eight lives. I had a dream, too, on the boat. Oh, not while I was asleep. Um, maybe it will come true. If you want it to, it will. I've never wanted anything more in my life. There are things it's sometimes better not to know. Speak up, man! What is in my hand? Murder. out tonight, King. Perhaps they're telling us something. I think we should listen. The Bloody Pit. This is episode 164 of this particular podcast show. We're glad you're back. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we are here tonight to continue our series on 1940s Universal horror films with a film that I'll admit I was a little shocked to see come up on the list. Mm -hmm. uh, I hadn't completely forgotten about this movie, but it had been well over 25 years since I watched it. Uh, tonight's film is Flesh and Fantasy from 19, 1943. Actually, came out on October the 29th Ooh. of 1943. Mm -hmm. um, and to be honest, uh, there's there's been always been a little bit of carping about whether or not this is really a horror film or not. Mm -hmm. uh, and we'll we'll discuss mm -hmm. that. I think that there's almost no way to say that the Let's just say the middle section, the, the the center story of this trio of tales. There's no way to get around it. It's a horror story. It's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Um, but uh, I can horror understand. Noir kind of. Yeah. 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 Well, but the the supernatural element is what yeah. really. Sure. I mean, they don't shy away from the supernatural element at all. Right. Which does end up eventually pushing it completely into the horror yeah. realm, which yeah. is which is really nice. But uh, at the same time, flesh and fantasy is. Underknown, underseen, until well, I I'd never heard of it. Well, yeah, <laughs> until, I mean, we, until we, we you until you this. said that's what's coming up next, I just like I have no idea what this film is. Never heard of it. Never heard of it. And as far as releases on disc, I mean, Universal has kind of sloughed it off in in a mm -hmm. in just a simple DVD release, uh, part of their vault collection. And it's, um, I mean, don't get me wrong, that it looks good on that particular DVD, but it is kind of strange that this movie, especially with the A-list stars that are involved oh, yeah. in it, this movie has somehow just not gotten the mm -hmm. respect mm -hmm. that, in my opinion, it completely deserves. And I'm, I'm going to be honest, I, I'm a big fan of this movie. 
Uh, I remember watching it several times in the early 90s when I captured it off uh, AMC, back when AMC still showed movies. Uh, yeah, boy, and I think I remember those days. <laughs> it was it was before they showed commercials uh, yeah, in between, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, remember, d- yeah. during the movie. They might show some stuff in between the movies, but not yeah. during the movies. But the, uh, the heyday of that is long since gone, and it's odd to me that... Uh, don't get me wrong. This is good news. I mean, we just found out that yeah. come the come the end of January, Vinegar Syndrome of all labels mm-hmm. is going to be putting this film out on Blu-ray for the first time. Yeah, uh, in a nicely extra up yeah. package. It's I guess. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of stunned. What I, timing? I know. It's just, but it's great to be able to do this show and not have to tell you go out there and hunt it up and dig and hunt, you know you might be able to find it in some <laughs> hidden nook and cranny of the internet. Somewhere, yep. but it's like no, it's going to be right at your right at your fingertips, yeah. and you can see a much better version than we've been watching. Uh, for, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the they they apparently went back to the vault. Uh, you know, got got uh, got you know good ele- good good if not incredible elements. And we're gonna. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to it. I of course pre-ordered that puppy. You know? <laughs> it's like, what you want? Twenty two bucks. Here's my twenty two bucks. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. so not that not that hard to do. So um, here very soon, Flesh and Fantasy, I suspect, may become better known. Amongst film fans, uh, and like I say, uh, I think it deserves more respect than it gets. I understand some of the uh, the complaints, especially of contemporary uh, critics, mm-hmm. that they have for the film. That I can see some of it, but these days, I think looking back at a movie that's approaching, good lord, eighty years of age, my god. Uh, time has sanded off any complaints that I would have had mm-hmm. uh, long ago, um, mm-hmm. but it is fascinating to learn some interesting things. Interesting things to say, the least about this movie is about its production. First of all, let's point out that as impressive as this movie is, it's kind of a follow-on, in a way, from a film that the uh, the director had made a couple of years before. Um, Tales of Manhattan is a movie that uh, French director Julien Duvivier, and I'm probably mispronouncing Yeah, his I was going to try Duvivier, but that's De Vivier? Totally wrong. Duvivier? See, that's a possibility. That's maybe, too. maybe. Possibly. You could be, you could be right. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to say mm-hmm. Julian because he's, because yeah. I'm, I'm, I am. Because first name basis with him. Well, I mean, it, well, let's think about it. I mean, this movie, this, this guy's uh, career started in the silence. Yeah. And yeah. as a matter of fact, he's the man who directed The Golem. Uh, yeah. Pretty impressive horror um, credential there on his resume, yeah, to say yeah. the least. Things I've read about him, I know they say that he he really is, you know is one of the major f- directors. Just that he uh, his name isn't mentioned as often as some of the contemporaries right. from his time. Who, but he really uh, should be should be considered ranked higher or mentioned more than he is. For for me, the only other thing that I was familiar with. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. And I just saw it for the first time a couple of years ago. It was a film he did in 1937 called Pepe Lamoco. Of course, it's yes. a very good movie, and uh, I really like that one. But uh, he had done a, a previous film that was built around uh, several different stories, another anthology tale before this mm-hmm. movie called Tales of Manhattan, in which uh, essentially the movie follows a piece of an article of clothing, a coat. Yeah. Uh, from story to story, and that's kind of the hook from uh, to, to get you from place to place and from story to story in that particular film. And so there was a similar uh, way of constructing the stories within this movie, but strangely enough, not the same not the same <laughs> framing device as what was uh, eventually used within the film. Because of course, amusingly enough, what we have here is uh, the great Robert Benchley. Yeah. 
uh, involved in a, uh, a, a, a framing sequence that allows, them, allows these, these three different stories to be told as if they are being related to him or he is reading them. And that is, uh, that is interesting, but that was not the original vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it is interesting that there were originally four stories, yeah, sure not yeah. three. Yeah. And one of them, uh, which was about a half an hour long, when they, when they uh, presented that original cut to preview audiences, it was the best mm-hmm. of the four. It, reg- regardless of anything else... All the notes that came back on that early version of the film with the fourth story in it was that that was the strongest story. The one that they cut out was the strongest mm. story. Mm. And you might think to yourself, why in the <laughs> hell would you cut the strongest story out of out of mm. your movie? Mm-hmm. I mean, even Edward G. Robinson told the, uh, the lead actress uh, who was in that particular story that he thought it was ridiculous because yeah. the, the her segment, the one that she starred in, was easily the best in the film, mm. and that's that's Edward G. Robinson saying that to another actor. My piece, my, you know, his piece yeah. now which, stands. Which really, yeah, his is kind of the standout story yeah. now. Uh, but but in his opinion, yeah. hers was was far better. But what they ended up doing was taking that half hour piece and two years later expanding it under uh, the tutelage of a different director, mm-hmm. uh, original Le Borg. Uh, they came in and they lengthened it out and turned it into the into a movie called Destiny in 19... I think, wait a minute, no, it was only a year later. 1944, I think, is when Destiny mm-hmm. came out. And, of course, from all accounts, uh, the, the stretching of that story out to feature length instead of it being a 30-minute long piece mm-hmm. uh, weakened it considerably. And, of mm-hmm. course, it being something... It, it being a feature story, they uh, had to find a way to soften the ending. Apparently, they were able to uh, keep a rather harsh ending because it was in an anthology film, and of course there are, there's more than a couple of harsh endings that end up in anthology films simply because the censors have a tendency to be a... They have a lighter touch mm-hmm, when, they, yeah. when they're distracted mm-hmm. by the fact that, oh, well, now there's another story right after it. Oh, I guess, <laughs> yeah. I guess having the bad guy get pulled apart by, <laughs> pulled apart by a raging yeah. crowd of enraged people <laughs> is, is okay. Is okay. If we're then going to yeah. go and watch this funny man on a tightrope, that's well, good. So. Well, it's like this film we're talking about. The middle segment is the darkest because yeah. it's bookended by two far more optimistic uh, yeah. stories. And that is where we get into the the major complaints that have always been around about flesh and fantasy, which is that it is anchored by that center story that stars Edward G. Robinson, and that story is undeniably brilliant. It is a fantastic story. It is the one that gives it the most gravitas. It has Mm -hmm. the one that has... It's the best told. It is the best... Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, It's gorgeous. It's well acted. Edward G. Robinson gets to do something as an actor that you kill for, which mm-hmm. is he gets to play essentially kind of two versions of himself, mm-hmm. where he gets to kind of be the the devil on his own shoulder, mm-hmm. uh, where mm-hmm. he's, uh, bri- and, and this is brilliant, the, the number of ways in which they find to have him see his own reflection and have his reflection mm-hmm. talking to him and convincing him that the things that he wants, that he th- wants to do, that he fears that he has to do, are the right things to do, they're, they're amazing. They're fantastic, and it's just a, it's almost a tour de force for, for, for Edward G. Robinson in a film where he, you know, his his story comprises barely a third of the running time. He's yeah. just absolutely fantastic. Yeah, but of course, yeah. he always was. That's oh, not, God, a, yeah. Yeah, not a real fantastic. shock. You talk yeah. about Edward <laughs> right. G. Robinson being good in a movie. Right. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> but um, 
If you've not seen Flesh for Fantasy, I don't think... We're going to end up talking about this whole film. We're going to spoil yeah. the whole living yeah, crap out of it. Because I think that uh, the film being 80 years old, there was I, I had a mental back and forth with myself repeatedly about ruining this. But at the same time, it's three separate stories. It is just about to come out on Blu-ray. Hallelujah. Mm-hmm. So you can quickly, you can put this, you can download this episode. Uh, <laughs> donate to our donate to our, our jar there just out of kindness yeah and, yeah uh, that'd be great <laughs> and then and, and, and then just hold on to it and get get that blu-ray watch it and then you know you can listen to us like just a month later you know we'll, we'll still be fresh <laughs> we won't even have aged that much so uh, well I keep looking at photos of me from 10 years ago and I <laughs> I am aging every month. Yes, <laughs> I, I, I I don't know. Some, one of it, one of us needs a portrait somewhere in a closet or an attic or something. I got to tell you, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. This necessarily you. Anyway, um, all right. Well, um, I tell you what, we're going to take a brief break and then we'll come back and I'm going to dive into a fantastic synopsis of this film and we're going to talk a good deal about flesh and fantasy from 1943. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher. Or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Bryce, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. Flesh and Fantasy, 1943. Troy, you want to know one of the things that tells me this is a standout, very different film from the other movies that we're going to talk about as we do these 1940s universal horror films. The you know, fact the, that it's 90 minutes? That's that's number two on my okay. list. Okay. That's number two. Okay. <clears throat> number one mm-hmm. would be the fact that this movie reportedly had $250,000 spent on it as advertising. Wow. Wow. Well, even looking at it, it it's I mean, you you it, it looks more expensive than, oh, yeah. than 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 your typical movie at this time, Universal horror film at this time for sure. If you look at the budget for this thing, the budget on this was crazy. Plus the fact that they did not rush him to finish this movie. Mm. This movie, it kind of started and stopped repeatedly over the course of nearly a year before he wrapped up the finished film that we see now and handed right. it in. And of course, that takes into account, you know, having to rejigger things and and, yeah, and edit right. out edit out that fourth that mm-hmm. fourth story, mm-hmm. and then kind of find a way to paper over that. And that that's when they came in and decided to do the uh, the wraparound story with uh, with Robert Benchley, mm-hmm. because that, like I say, that's a later addition to the mm-hmm. entire production. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, although now I know that the Robert Benchley wraparound story. The framing device yeah. 
isn't an artificial one, one that was not originally intended to be the way the film would unfold, I do have to say that it, I, I feel that it's wonderful. I really do enjoy the Benchley parts. I don't know about you. I, th- when, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's, it's wonderful. I love Robert Benchley is just so much. In, they're enjoyable. Yeah. I mean, I always, he's always just an enjoyable presence. I felt it was a little... I mean, I didn't really feel... I didn't dislike it, but I just didn't really feel it was very effective. Like, I don't feel like okay, it... Okay, okay. Like, it didn't really go much of anywhere with me. I mean, the two, eventually, and the other guy, um, um, Hoffman, David Hoffman, are, are, are fun in what they're doing. But it's just kind of like, compared to a lot of other framing stories that are more effective or more like kind of deliver a little bit of a punch or kind of tie things together. Right. So it doesn't surprise me to find out. I didn't know until you said it that it was it was one that, that it was kind of tacked on or that it was Yeah, it was something not that came, they, they realized they were going to have to do later yeah. on. Yeah. yeah. As far as framing stories, I've, I've seen better, you know, but it's, it's, it's you know, it's okay. You know, I mean, it's, I understand the need for it there and it's, it's you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, I don't dislike it, but it's just, yeah, to me, it just wasn't really, it didn't really, it didn't really do much to enhance the stories, I think, really. I mean, or what they're doing. They didn't really tie them together, I didn't think, very well. Because I think all three of the stories really, I mean, we can, we'll do this on the show, I'm sure, is kind of talk about continuing things, but I think you got to dig a little bit to find a whole lot of real, real, to take those three stories, like a whole lot that really ties them together. But there are, there are certain things. I mean, there are some right. things we can identify. But I think that they're three individually interesting stories on their own. But but there's not it's not one of those where I think they're effectively where okay this is a thread that I'm following through these stories. True, I true, think, so. true, true, true. Yeah. And we're not and we're not following you know a cackling crypt crypt keeper <laughs> or anything like that. So yeah. I mean, yeah. <clears throat> what were they thinking? I mean, <laughs> right? Come on, people. But the one thing that I that, that did not occur to me years ago because I'll admit I was unaware of this as a possible reference point. Benchley's character is Mr. Dokes. Mm-hmm. D-O-A-K-E-S. And I immediately went, oh, when were they making those short films, Joe McDokes? Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Those, yeah. those, those humorous, those yeah. humorous um, short films uh, often referred to as like behind the eight ball yeah. or, or just the Joe McDokes mm-hmm. shorts. <clears throat> and like I say, they're not calling him Mr. McDokes. And they were definitely not produced by Universal, so I don't think yeah. they would want to stride too close yeah. to that line. Yeah. But I do wonder if they were kind of... Uh, the, the first Joe McDoke short came out in, uh, I think, two years before this film came out. So you might be on the verge of it being well-known enough for people to kind of think, yeah. oh, that's a, it's an interesting little humorous reference point because those Joe uh, McDoke's shorts were always... You know, they were they were comedies. Yeah, yeah. And I, did, I, I thought about his short films and I didn't even make the connection with the name there. That's, that's yeah, interesting. But the... Uh, the Having uh, Benchley come in and do these things, he was, of course, known for being uh, a very amusing presence mm-hmm. on screen as well. Mm-hmm. But this, and I think that that is, I, I do wonder if one of the problems contemporary audiences, especially critics, might have had with this is that by starting the film with Robert Benchley and another actor talking about, uh, you know, talking about different things, may have set the mood for contemporary audiences there in the 1940s to expect something that was going to lean more heavily into the humorous area. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that may be part of one of the, you know, that may be one of the reasons why, although this film did make, uh, you know, like, I think it's a little under $2 million, which, you know, mm-hmm. makes it supposedly a hit, um, mm-hmm. but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't considered, the, it wasn't the hit that Universal wanted at all yeah. because of the amount of the production cost. But the, um, the knowledge that he, Robert Benchley, Almost was a, was a brand name in 
uh, humor to a mm-hmm. large degree. Mm-hmm. Probably points us toward one of the reasons why there's uh, there was kind of some pushback mm-hmm. on yeah. the, the, the 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 entire film, even though he's there to kind of lighten the mood mm-hmm. a little bit, um, mm-hmm. especially at the end when you know you don't want to send you don't want to send the crowd out. You know, with that kind of uh, Nalarish ending that you would get otherwise with that with that final story, with that third story, and so they necessarily, especially if you want to, yeah, <laughs> if you want to make sure that the uh, the production code doesn't <laughs> doesn't say something. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. bad bad person is going to jail, but mm-hmm. boy, it sure do stomp all over the romance, don't it? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure that the the Hayes Code office was. I'm, they, I'm sure they the, the the production code office. I'm sure they were fine with it. Mm-hmm. But uh, at the same time, gi- giving us that little you know, don't walk under the ladder joke at the end of it. For sure, yeah, eventually, right, of right. course, and I did enjoy that. I mean, but I it, it kind of puts a button on it, so that's yeah. not too bad. Yeah. But um, I've got here. I've got this fantastic article that I just found. I I, I found uh, to be very intriguing. Throughout some interesting ideas about the film. But what's what we're going to use it for primarily is the. Uh, the uh, rather concise synopsis. Now we're going to stop periodically because uh, I think it's best to discuss each story as we go mm-hmm. along. Sure. But uh, what we have here is uh, Mr. Dokes. That's that's Robert Benchley, mm-hmm. uh admits to a fellow club man, Mr. Davis. That's David Hoffman, mm-hmm. that he has been disturbed by a dream recently, or rather by the dream that followed his encounter with a fortune teller. This fortune teller told him that he would do a certain thing and the dream told him that he would not do that particular thing. So essentially he is in the position of kind of laughing about the fact that he's destined to prove accurate either fortune telling or a dream. Yeah. Because yeah. one or the other of them is going to happen. The, the thing that the, right. the thing that he's he's the event he's talking about, one or the other has to occur no matter what. Mm-hmm. Well, this exchange uh, leads to a conversation about the reality or otherwise of predictions of the future and how far human lives are uh, dictated by destiny itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, Davis then chooses a book from the shelves of the club library, and together he and Dokes consider three tales of the supernatural. Now, first let's stop here and discuss the fact that, folks, men's clubs are where men went to get away from everybody else. <laughs> yeah. That is, men who could afford to be in a club. Right. It's right. where you would go and right. you would possibly eat dinner, possibly have drinks, possibly just sit quietly in a room and not be at home where all the the children and the wives and the <laughs> and the problems were. Yeah. <laughs> Some men would go out of their way to attempt to live at their clubs and just never go <laughs> yeah. home and just perhaps send money and make sure that the cleaning lady is, is actually going into the house to keep things tidy for the children. But nevertheless, this yeah. is a, this is not something that I think that as Americans, and especially in the, even in the 20th century, I don't know, past about 1960, where there, besides something yeah. like, you know, the Shriners, I mean, was that, were, did we really have anything of that type that could uh, could be pointed toward? I don't know. See, whenever I think of this, I always think of uh, the, the British equivalent, the young, rich British man's equivalent, like in Jeeves. Yeah. You ever watching Jeeves in Worcester? You know, oh, yeah, exactly. You just, yeah. You yeah, the club is basically where you go with your cronies and get roaring drunk and 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 yeah. shun all responsibility or ever growing up until your valet comes and yeah, take play, you play 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 cards and, yeah. and gamble into yeah. and, and the into the wee hours of the night and definitely yeah. into the next morning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> certainly, certainly. Yeah, uh, but these are this is what uh, 
Maybe the uh, the nightclub is the mm. the last holdover vest vest vested possibility. Mm. I mean, maybe, yeah. maybe maybe, but I mean, it doesn't really work because mm. you're going to a nightclub to attempt to get laid. You're yeah, trying to right. you know you're trying to yeah. find some kind of companionship of the opposite sex. Whereas mm. the men's clubs really kind of were geared into a different direction. The idea mm. was to to kind of separate yourself from those kinds of. Uh, uh, Complications. I mean, yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe that's really the way to look at it is an attempt to shun complications in life and responsibilities of certain type, even if only for a little while. And then, of course, you always have to think of the ultimate uh, getaway from a club, the Diogenes Club. You know, which right, you right. basically go to get away literally from every Everybody, single other human yeah. being, where you're not even allowed to talk in there. Yeah, you cannot speak. You you're not speak there for. Yeah. You're not there to gamble. You're not there to do anything other than to be silent. Yeah. Possibly eat. Possibly drink. Definitely read, and that's really about as far as you're willing to go in the Diogenes Club. It sounds wonderful, doesn't it? <laughs> it you know, sometimes there are, times not, when, there are times I think we all wish for a Diogenes Club every night. Yeah, that you yeah. can go to, yeah. be there for a few hours, yeah. and then go somewhere else. Yes, yeah. yes, I can yeah. definitely see the, uh, I can see the appeal. <clears throat> I can't believe I'm admitting this, but yes, it's true. <laughs> I don't hate all people, just no. just most of them. <laughs> I don't want to get away from them forever, just most of the time. <laughs> I may have to edit that part out. Wait, anyway. <laughs> so uh, we start this. Uh, we start these uh, these stories being told, and as 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 you can remember, there used to be four, but we we only get three. Uh, the first one takes place in New Orleans, and as others celebrate Mardi Gras. A young dressmaker named Henrietta, who's played by the lovely Betty Fields, being mm-hmm. made up and photographed in a way to make it, to make us somehow ridiculously believe that yeah, somehow I'm, Betty Fields is an unattractive just woman. Not buying it. Not buying it. I'm afraid. <sighs> I mean, they're doing the best they, they can. can. They can. They are. They're but doing, yeah. But <laughs> it's, it's like it's it's Betty Fields. She's a pretty woman. Just, I mean, <laughs> come on. Well, anyway, this young dressmaker named Henrietta broods over her lonely life, one full of bitterness. And completely without love. She blames this on her plain face. Yes, her plain face. Mm -hmm. Being carefully photographed to make her look like a gargoyle. (laughs) Finally, in despair, she contemplates suicide. uh, But is prevented by the intervention of a mask maker. This mask maker offers her the chance to see the world from a different perspective. He takes her back to her... I mean, he takes her back to his uh, mask uh, shop and offers her one that she can wear that evening on the last night of Mardi Gras that will give her the outward appearance of beauty. Now, she has been, uh, she has been uh, kind of pining away for a young man who she lives near, played by uh, Robert Cummings. Mm-hmm who is a student and uh, he's studying to be he's studying to become a lawyer and um, he seems to completely not even know she exists barely his eyes glance right over her because of course she's she's a hideous gargoyle I mean it's just yeah, well, yeah. I'm surprised he doesn't throw up yeah I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much surprised he doesn't attack her physically for thinking, <laughs> that, thinking that she's some kind of you know horrid beast that he's yeah. a slay but <laughs> So she uh, ventures out that evening, and wonderfully enough, I mean, she gets to experience all of the things at this at these at these various you know uh, crowded gatherings that 
attractive women get to uh, experience all the time being groped by people she doesn't know yeah <laughs> being yeah. Yeah. being mildly molested and mm. lusted after by people who uh, she's never met in her life and will never know the names of mm. so you know she's starting to get a little bit of <laughs> information about what's going on here and she doesn't yeah. but of course she's looking around trying to make that connection that uh, she's trying to swipe the correct way on tinder to find this this <laughs> this uh, student by you know played by Robert Cummings who's out and about and she does. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they strike up a conversation. Uh, her, he, uh, she, wearing this mask, uh, he engages her in conversation and becomes convinced over the course of the evening that she actually is beautiful. Regardless of what her face looks like behind the mask, it doesn't matter to him because they've spent a few hours together. Mm-hmm. And he's gotten to know her. And she has essentially... Now this is where we get into this. This is... I find this story, from a modern perspective, and maybe not even just from a modern perspective, to be problematic on a couple of different levels. One is the whole, ah, yes, you can only you can only uh, be a good match. You can only attract men if you're uh, a stunningly gorgeous mm-hmm. woman. So you know, mm-hmm. it's like, mm-hmm. Eh, mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know that that's necessarily true. I mean, I think mm-hmm. I'm a gargoyle, and I've been able to attract <laughs> some some very attractive women in my life. So I don't know that it works in both directions. I don't think that kind of really fall. I, I think that is a that is a failure of not this movie necessarily, but of that particular story trope. I think mm-hmm. it kind of mm-hmm. crumbles the more you examine it. But okay, let's put to the side the whole idea because that is kind of the underlying idea of the story, which is that oftentimes we ignore the most beautiful things in the world Mm -hmm. simply because it's not exploding in our face. It's not, you know, the, the, Mm -hmm. it's, it's not conventionally beautiful or conventionally attractive. There are things to be said about that part of the story that can, that allows you to kind of find a way to defend it. But, and as I said, we are going to, we are going to spoil this to a large degree. Mm-hmm. The rejection that Henrietta feels throughout the first part of the story that she completely attributes and the story attributes to her being plain, mm-hmm. to her not being, you know, mm-hmm. the standard attractive woman that we would expect, all goes away, all fades away, and then the story kind of undermines anything that might actually be learned from this. If, it, if there is a good underlying kind of mm-hmm. life-affirming message in the story, the ending the story gives us, which is a supernatural one to a degree, really kind of undermines what could have been, I think, a really fantastic story, a really fantastic idea about what what beauty really is, mm-hmm. as opposed to the outward facade that the mask then kind of gives to her. Well, I think that it changes. Uh, I think the, the the part of the story or the message that could have been effectively conveyed is. The fact that, you know, the idea is that she doesn't get really transformed until she does a selfless act, you know, until she... Now, that's true. Because she encourages him. Right. But because it's kind of established, and again, this is a short story, so it has to establish it very quick, that she's a vengeful, she's a spiteful person. Just she's honestly. angry. She's angry. She's angry. Yeah, she doesn't like, she doesn't wish good things for other people because she doesn't have them. When she could, instead of encourage, he wants to stay with her. Because he's falling for her, her mass self anyway. Right. But she doesn't play on that as well. Only as she is, she tells him, "No, you've got to go and do what you're meant to do in your life, and 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 do give use your gifts, and and you know, and by encouraging another person, this is what supposedly transforms her. What I think would have been more effective is when she takes off her mask, if she hasn't changed at all, 
you know, because what happens right. is they change out, they change, they took change out the lighting and the makeup on her, and you know, and kind of make her kind of shine now with you know. But really, I think it would have been more effective if when she took off the mask, she didn't look any different to us. But to him, yeah, she she looked as beautiful as when she was wearing. Yes, the mask. exactly. Yeah, right. yeah. I think that, that would have been would, a little that bit would have been yeah. the perfect capper, and then mm-hmm. the but the movie submarines it because it it's mm-hmm. it's almost as if. There, it's trying to stress that if you can make the effort, if you can mm. honestly be selfless, if you mm. can really be the kind of person who, let's be honest, is willing to toss away your entire life to make someone else happy because you're in love with them, then you are beautiful. And it's like, yeah, but by making it real, mm. you're submarining the the the, mm. the real the, the the really motivating part of that because. Guess what? There ain't no Santa Claus, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No one's gonna wave a magic mm-hmm. wand. There isn't, you know, there mm-hmm. isn't a, a, a good witch that's mm-hmm. gonna come in and, and help you out with this and and turn you into a, a supermodel. It's it's mm-hmm. it's not there. And so the the, the story kind of undermines mm-hmm. itself. I mean, she spends this whole evening that they're mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. She 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 devotes herself to changing his mind and giving him faith in himself. When he's expressing doubts, because he's talking about not even finishing college and going, he's he's already signed on to a yeah. steamership mm-hmm. to just go off and 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 do something else because he's so distraught with his with with his own life. Mm-hmm. And see, that's the that's the thing that I think this story mm-hmm. misses in a way. Mm-hmm. Remember, he feels like he's about to throw his life away because he's so depressed, he's so down. He's about to just throw his life away and go and mm-hmm. be mm-hmm. someone who stokes you know stokes the engines on a steamership. And she, just earlier in the story, was was ready to kill herself, was ready yeah. to commit suicide. Yeah. Yeah. Now, these are two people who really are at the darkest, deepest, worst moments mm-hmm. in their lives up to that point. They are in despair. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a fantastic way. That, 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 that really carries a lot of weight, especially, the I think, the, the sequence where we see her on, on, on the riverside there thinking about killing herself. Mm-hmm. When um, the mask maker intervenes and starts starts talking to her, that's that's brilliant filmmaking. By the way, I think this movie is beautifully filmed. I, I think it's say, impeccably directed. Yeah, I think it is yeah. a gorgeous, visually amazing film. Yes. And this story, which I think we probably both agree is the weakest of the three stories, to yeah, to a large degree. You know, it still visually is is fantastic. I mean, the scenes in the mask shop and the scenes oh, in the market yes. draw. The whole way the film begins, which I think I'm right about this. The whole bizarre opening scene about this drowned man and these masks. I mean, it's great the way it starts. I think that that is left over yes. from the film that from the segment. Yes, exactly. And, that that character is the character who was uh, the, the character that washes up drowned uh, mm-hmm. on the riverside that those people gather around to look at. Yeah. Uh, that was the tag end of the first story yeah. that got eliminated. Thanks. So where where they saved that little piece to kind of introduce uh, the Robert Cummings character and the Betty Fields characters mm-hmm. standing there looking you know looking down along with all these other people at the body yeah and that's an incredible opening image or, or sequence yep. because it shows us all these masked you know and creatures drag dragging this body up out of the water before it shows us that we're at mardi gras so it's a great right. kind of uh, yeah all visual masks, slide of yeah. hand where you're just like what am i what kind what of we, uh, dropped who, into are, here is this and a devil yeah, and a demon so it's just a, what the hell so yeah. it's kind of to the it's kind of you know uh just to start on something like that that ultimately doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the film except to just introduce our two main characters in right. this story but it's a very effective opening and yeah throughout the the story is is just yeah throughout the whole movie the lighting and and, and visual imagery is just fantastic it is not hard to see that this was an a-list budget yeah. i mean oh, this, yeah. this is the 
money was lavished on this production, yeah. and it shows. It yeah. really, really does. But of course, the reason that they uh, they clearly felt that they needed to keep the uh, the the sequence there at the beginning of the drowned man being pulled out of the river uh, is twofold. One, it's it's already filmed, and it's how our two characters are introduced mm-hmm. to the audience mm-hmm. in the way they interact mm-hmm. with each other, mm-hmm. where he barely sees her and answers her que- you know answers the questions she puts to him without even looking at right. her. Uh, but at the same time, it's there also to put the idea of that type of death, that type of a suicide, mm-hmm. possible suicide, mm-hmm. into Henrietta's head. So we, we, we can understand why having it there at the beginning of this story is necessary, but it really, uh, was as soon as I found out that, oh, okay, okay, that was the, the end of the previous story. In other words, yeah, yeah. This, the first story was going to lead directly to the second story. In the same way that the third yes. story was going to lead directly to the last story, yeah. uh, which tells me very much that I think that I would have really enjoyed being able to see yes, me too. that two-hour-long cut of the film with the fourth story at the beginning, yeah. regardless of whether or not that first story was so good that it overshadowed everything that came after it. First of all, I don't think it would have overshadowed the Edward G. Robinson story. Right. Yeah. I think that it might have overshadowed the other two mm-hmm. Who knows? I have. I, I. I will admit, people. I have not seen the film that they made out of that. Um, yeah, I didn't get it. Yeah, by the time I found out that there was other, I was not. I didn't really have the time to track down. Yeah, this I seen Destiny or whatever, and try and find it. Yeah, but it makes me think that there's another reason why I think the why I'd love to have seen the original cut without the framing story because I think I'm not sure how it would have done it, but I'm guessing that apparently it was voiceover. Voiceover, okay. So I'm, I'm visually though. I'm thinking there must have been some way that the second story segues into the third. It doesn't do it here. Or the second story meaning the first the fir- story. I'm yeah, sorry. In the film we what have is now. The, the film, first, the first uh, yeah, story. That it because it because it, it does this great, which which is a nice effective last image that, that, that we yeah, see the mask yeah, and the I mask seller. I wouldn't it, want to screw with that last image where we see that mask right. in the window. But it makes me think that after that there was some way. Maybe that it because you talked about the film we did before, the Tales of Manhattan, where you've got this yeah. one object that flows through all that the flows stories. through the story. He obviously liked that kind of storytelling. It makes me think because otherwise, the way it's right now, it's kind of it feels really kind of uneven or plain because the way the third and fourth story, or the second and third story, sorry, <laughs> yeah, I'm, we're going to be doing this all show. Yeah, the way the yeah, second no. and third story flow so nicely into each other, it almost makes that first story seem even more out of place because it just sort of on its own and it ends, and you've got more of the framing story, yeah. and then this, but then you, so you're expecting after the second story. There's going to be another little break-in, cut-in to Robert Benchley. Well, you'll there no, isn't. It you'll just notice, jumps right into... Right, you'll you know. notice that uh, they they try to paper over the fact that oh. there is a hinge point yeah. between the, the second and the last story mm. uh, by having uh, the, the character there with Benchley... Uh, I forget mm. the Hoffman, or I forget the character's name. I forget the, the character's name. Yeah. But uh, by having him mention that the the story that he's that he's about to read actually oh. flows directly into the next right. story. So yeah. they're they're kind of like setting yeah. you up to know yeah. that before yeah. the fact. Yeah. Uh, and that and that's a little bit of after the fact papering over, yeah. you know, because <laughs> it's like remember, original idea was that you know that the the bridges were going to be voiceovers mm-hmm. in the in the mm-hmm. original conception of the way the film was going to flow. Yeah. So this framing story is doing double and sometimes triple duty. Uh, in how they eventually mm-hmm. pulled the film together, mm-hmm. and this—I uh, don't get me wrong—I still I think it I think it works just fine. But at the same time, it is one of those things where once you know that one little piece about the the, yeah. the, the fourth story that was yanked out of the film, 
a lot of the seams do start to show, and mm-hmm. that can either bother you or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't bother me in the final analysis because mm-hmm. I like what's there enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For it to for it to just be an interesting curiosity, mm-hmm. but uh, I can see, like I say, at the time when you're talking about contemporary reviews and people's reaction, reactions to it at the time in the four in the mid forties, mm-hmm. um, I can see why there might have been some kind of feelings of mm-hmm. eh, you may you know it's okay it's mm-hmm. yeah it was it was it was okay you mm-hmm. know it was good I guess or what you know that kind of. <sighs> mid-range reaction to the mm-hmm. to the overall effect of the stories. No. There are things it's sometimes better not to know. Well, regardless of what it is, I demand that you tell me. You're a brave man. Speak out, man! What is in my hand? Murder. You're going to kill someone, Mr. Tyler. I wanted to know. You insisted. Now look again. Perhaps you made a mistake. Mr. Tyler, you better go home. Get some sleep. Mr. Gasper, what do you mean when he said about something being in his hand? I don't know. He said there was something inside pushing him and making him do things. Okay, so uh, back at the club, we find uh, Mr. Dokes protesting that this particular story, this first story, hasn't anything to do with his own situation, while Mr. Davis counters that the moral of the story is that fate rests with the individual and that no outside force, be it a dream or a fortune teller, has the power to make anyone do anything that is not within their nature to do. I don't know that it really does. I mean, okay, Mm. maybe the fate thing, I guess. Hmm. But, you know, when a magic man intervenes who apparently doesn't really exist and makes you pretty, I mean... (laughs) Yeah, I, I I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> but uh, he uh, he's, he he insists that he can back up this argument with the next story in the book, and this is when we get to the one that is uh, it's an adaptation of an Oscar Wilde story, mm-hmm. uh, an 1891 short story, Lord Lord Arthur Seville, Lord Arthur Seville's Crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, they reset it in modern times. Yeah. yeah. With uh, Edward G. Robinson playing an American lawyer in London, this is the best part of the film. It is. It I is, mean, we've yeah. already we've already talked about that, but I don't think it can be overemphasized yeah. at how good yeah. this segment yeah. of the movie is. Yeah. It's the best story, the most complex that has the you know the the best layers to it as far as you know the the really psychological yeah. questions it raises. <laughs> yeah, more, more than a few. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My 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 initial reaction has always been the same, which was. Was he crazy all the time, yeah. or was he? Did he become crazy, yeah. or was he so close to the edge because yeah. of the? the well, anyway, well, we'll we'll discuss that in a moment. He says, uh, in London, the centerpiece of a gathering hosted by Lady Pamela Hardwick, played by Dame May Whitty, is the palmist Septimus Podgers, played wonderful by the, uh, the yeah the wonderful Thomas Mitchell is yeah. the actor who yeah. plays him. He's a fantastic yeah. he actor. Great. Uh, he's one of those. Uh, he's one of those guys I don't see in enough movies, but uh, when I do, I'm just glad he's there. Yeah, same here. He did. He, did he play? Uh, did he play the uh, the uncle in uh, It's a Wonderful Life? He sure did. Yeah, yes, sure did. yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Him and his him and his damn bird always perched <laughs> on his shoulder. <laughs> Love that actor. Uh, well, at any rate, uh, the uh, the palmist Septimus Podgers, whose assessments of the guests are alarmingly accurate. American lawyer Marshall Tyler, played by Edward G. Robinson, reacts to Podger's readings of the of people's hands 
with scorn, and he definitely reacts with scorn when Podgers reads his own hand. Mm-hmm. Though he is forced to change his mind when Rowena, uh, the the uh, played by Anna Lee, uh, who uh, who's the uh, uh, she, is she the goddaughter or the niece of the woman who's who's house they're in that they're who's in the, uh, I cannot remember right out. Uh, oh, God, uh, goddaughter. She's God, goddaughter. That's, that's right. what it was. <clears throat> um, By the way, I love seeing any chance to see Anna Lee. always great when she turns up. I think she's true. great. I always loved her in Bedlam. I thought she was fantastic yes, in that. Yes, yes, yes. She is uh, She's underused, she is. in my estimation. In, yeah. not, 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 I mean, here it's kind of, she's underused because that's, the focus of the the focus mm. of the story yeah. is is yeah. On, is not on her yeah. uh, and uh, but uh, she's underused as an actress I think across yeah. her career it's kind yeah. of a, kind of a shame. Well, anyway, he's forced to change his mind when Rowena, played by Anna Lee, uh, who he has long loved from afar uh, and apparently in vain, confesses her love for him just as Podgers had predicted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Aware that during the reading, Podgers saw something else in his hand which he did not reveal and that appeared to disturb him mm-hmm. Tyler pursues the palmist the palmist until he forces him to talk and learns that he is destined to commit murder mm-hmm. now there is so much in the setup just if you mm-hmm. had never seen the movie mm-hmm. had no had no knowledge of the short story just that as a setup will tell you Holy crap! Which way is this thing? Uh, th- this is amazing. What a setup for a story. I wonder which way this is going to go. And I have to admit, the choice made by the lawyer character always. Every, every time I've watched this movie, now, like I say, I probably saw it two or three times, twenty-five plus mm-hmm. years ago, mm-hmm. and now I've watched it a couple of more times. And each time he makes that decision, mm-hmm. the choice he makes, the path he decides to walk down. I am utterly stunned because I keep thinking to myself, that would not have occurred to me. Yeah, <laughs> that is right. not the path that I would have. I mean, that, that's the first thing, but it's the first thing that pops into his head. Yeah. It's the first thing that he thinks. He thinks, oh my God, I'm going to commit murder. Well, I better find somebody to kill and get that out of the way. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like, you know, somebody that doesn't matter. Let me kill somebody that's just. Yeah, that well, somebody who's so close to yeah, dying of dying. old age. Yeah. Yeah. Or illness, or something like yeah. that, that it won't matter. Yeah, you know, there's I'm, I'm and then I'll be, I'll be, I'll be, beating the, yeah, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be beating this, this, this horrible fate <laughs> that I that is in front of me, and I can right. move on, and I can move on with my life, and not having this hanging over my head, mm-hmm. and I'm going, boy, that ain't where I would have gone. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> we've talked, we've already mentioned that we both think this is the strongest story. Mm-hmm. What? I, th- this is the first. I know that you've only come to this movie recently, mm, just in the yeah. past couple of months. Yeah. What 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 did you think? Did had you were you were you aware of the short story at all? Were you aware? No, I was not. No, okay. I was not. I was. I mean, I was aware that it, this was the one that's based, but no, I'd never read the story. So did you have? What, yeah. What, what what did you think as yeah. as he starts to 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 literally argue with himself and argue oh, yeah. himself into? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, course of action repeatedly. I mean, my first thought is, is uh, yeah, my first thought is, is there something, is, is was the story going to take some kind of satanic turn? Like, was oh. that, <clears throat> you know. I see, yeah. Has he somehow been, you know, like, is this voice talking to him, like, you know, the, the devil on the shoulder that's actually some sort of other force? You know, then after the story concluded, and I thought back on it and watched it a second time, then I start coming up with the thing that, you know, coming up to another degree that, 
you can totally watch this tale and eliminate all the, if you wish, eliminate any supernatural forces already, you know, at all. You know, even if you think that Podgers has a real ability, or you think he doesn't, as far as like how much of this is, even all these, all these conversations that Edward G. Robinson has with himself, you know, that you can take it from the standpoint that it's really all in his head, you know, that there's really yeah. nothing supernatural happening here, that this is all some deep buried psychosis. I even started to think like there's part of him that resi- that doesn't, that, that maybe being a lawyer or something or being so close to the criminal element, you know, like maybe there's just something, this fascination he has or, or within him or maybe in this kind of arrogance of being like above the law or knowing how to manipulate the law or knowing how to, you know, get away with murder and how to shave the edges off the truth. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and is there something something annoying? Is there something he's like even a malice towards this woman, this old woman that he contrives to to kill? Is there something right. within him all along that just you know wanted her something to happen to her, wanted her out of his life or something like well, that? It what occurred to me, and I don't remember thinking this years ago, but it really stood out for me here. Um, I think that. The, the things when he when he when he relents and allows uh, the the guy to read his palm, mm-hmm. he's of course he completely disbelieves all of this this crap, and it doesn't really do anything to him except that one of the things, as a matter of fact, I think it's the first thing that the palmist uh, actually tells him, mm-hmm. is that the lady he loves also loves him but secretly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Now, here's the thing. He dismisses that. He's like, "Oh, please. That's I, I know. I know you're. I know you're a fraud now because that's that's complete crap." Mm-hmm. But he wants it to be true. Mm-hmm. And then minutes later, the woman that this younger woman played by Anna Lee, who he has loved from afar, but has you know he's he's not embarrassed himself. He's not made his he's not made his affections known. She. Well, we witness her breaking up with her mm-hmm. current paramour mm-hmm. and be going out of her way to make it clear that she really does have some affection for this American lawyer, this man yeah. who's old enough to be her father, to be blunt. Mm-hmm. And it this all happens one, two, three in this same in the same setting at the same party. And so within short order, he has evidence in front of him that this guy might not be full of shit. Mm-hmm. Oh my mm-hmm. God! Something that I knew could not be true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Turns out there's some veracity to this. Mm-hmm. What am I going to do now? Mm-hmm. And this, I think, is the hinge because for oh, him, oh, for, sorry, for, him for for that mm-hmm. part to be true, mm-hmm. for the part that he wants to be true to be real, mm-hmm. his mind won't let him turn loose of the awful thing. Yeah. That he's also been told. Yes. To do away with one of them might do away with both of them, and he never puts it that way. Yeah. If he makes sure that he never kills anyone, if he finds a way to guarantee that he never commits murder ever, does that mean that the other thing becomes untrue as well? Mm. And mm. I, that just hangs over this thing without ever coming out as a statement. Mm-hmm. But if you if that is if you take that as a written thing, if you take that as something built into him, which seems to be true, mm-hmm. that's the driver. Did he go crazy? In other words, contemplating that over and over and over again to the point where he chases the palmist down, finds him in his own home, gets him to look at his palm a second time. Yeah. Did he snap? Did, or was he crazy before and just keeping it under control? Yeah. 
to have what he wants, yeah. the woman that he is in love with, he can't break both of these. He can't do something to possibly negate it. And I love, I love the fact that that just kind of floats there under the surface. It's never brought up. It's yeah. never said. But it's one of those things where when you see it, you're just like, that could be what drives him nuts. Yeah. I can't have the thing yeah. I want without yeah. doing one of the most heinous acts yeah. humanly imaginable. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, no, I, I think, think, I think, I think it's amazing. Like he's, yeah, and, 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 I'm so, and I'm sorry I interrupted you, but no, I, knew no, if I, I, did, actually, I knew if I didn't finish that, I'd forget it. No, and actually, I, I, I know it was the other way around. I should apologize. I was interrupting you, but I think we just forgot that. I was just going to say we forgot that there, there was a – or there, there's another that – uh, it's enhanced by there's a second prediction. Oh well, it's the predi- yeah the, the prediction makes that about he, avoid Whitechapel. Right. Yeah. Well, not only that, uh, the the one that can, the, the the prediction coming true that convinces everybody, including our you know our nose in oh, the right. air lawyer, yes, yeah. is that um, earlier in the evening, Podgers, the palmist, has um, has told Lady Carrington that she will soon hear from her husband, who has been presumed dead for two years at that point. Yeah. And hear him saying that, a lot of the people there kind of, you know, talk amongst themselves mm-hmm. and speak mm-hmm. about how that's really in bad taste. You know, mm-hmm. Her husband is dead. You know, which for us as an audience makes makes us start thinking, oh, are we gonna are we gonna move into the seance area? We're already mm-hmm. reading poems here, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. right? But no, just a little while later there is a radio report mm-hmm. that this that her husband, who has been missing for two years, has been found alive with some other members of his party and is going to be coming home. Mm-hmm. And so that is all the proof that almost anybody there needs that this Potter's guy, he, you know, he swung for the fences and knocked the fence down. Yeah. I mean, this is something that nobody would have ever thought could be possibly true, and he nailed it. So... That is what makes that. Like I say, that is the 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 instigating moment where nobody in that room is doubting this guy any longer. No matter how he tries to keep mm-hmm. things light, yeah. and kind of move move beyond that and just treat it as like this is just wonderful news for mm-hmm. Lady Carrington. This is fantastic. Mm-hmm. What he has done, unfortunately, though, by you know, by seeing that horrible fate in the lawyer's hands. Mm-hmm. Is he's uh, he started a horrible snowball rolling downhill, yeah. and and then you have to ask, okay, you either take one side, like you believe that he has powers. If he doesn't have powers, was he? Does he do this occasionally to someone he knows has money because he knows if he plays cagey and like, no, 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 I don't want to talk about it. They'll eventually come back and offer him right more money. So is that is he? You know, is he a scam artist or is he truly got powers? We never right. know, but it's it's fun to just. I like the fact that we never know really, but that's again it comes back to that thing of how much. You can describe however much supernatural you want to the story, right. and, and and or not none at all. Yeah. Well, that, and that's another thing they take care to situate the story in 1933, mm-hmm. which um, and this is just something that I know because I'm absolutely fascinated by this and pulp fiction from the period of time. Uh, boy, was that the heyday of that's why I left two seances. It was the heyday of oh, yeah. seances yeah, yeah, and was, spirit yeah. shows and all that kind of ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know the, mm-hmm. the 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 people you know people you know, yeah. do, be, be able to like knock on the floor or have yeah. whispers and the whispers from the other room that were supposed to be spirits and things of that nature. There was a lot of this kind of, you know, low-grade spirituality grifting that was going on. And so... The, the idea that this guy might be that that's the, that's the, the audience as the audience we're on the side of, of Edward G. Robinson's character at the beginning of this mm-hmm. at the beginning of this story because we're like yeah 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 whatever the fuck but then you get to the point where it's like one two three 
four predictions, and mm-hmm. you know where you mm-hmm. could literally go, okay, he was right about every one of these, and there's no way he could have mm-hmm. known, yeah. you know, all of them. There's no right. way he could have like tagged yeah. each one of these. So there is a supernatural element, a major supernatural element that you have mm-hmm. to ingest to enjoy this story, and. Honestly, I think it works. I think it's I think it works wonderfully. A lot of that comes down to, oh, wow, just fantastic performances. Mm-hmm. Not just mm-hmm. from Edward G, but also from uh, the the fabulous the fabulous actor once again who's playing uh, the the uh, the palmist. He's mm-hmm. so good in this. The the shades of it's almost as if he's not necessarily. I don't know if this is true, but it feels like. This is not the first time he's had to be cagey and careful around mm-hmm. someone mm-hmm. who he's had to deliver a possibly shaded prediction to because mm-hmm. he wants to keep himself alive. Mm-hmm. He wants to make sure that he's not placing himself in danger by putting information into someone's head mm-hmm. or revealing that he knows something that he really should not know, like evidence mm-hmm. of a crime or knowledge of some yeah. kind of possible crime in the future you know who knows but didn't you ask yourself though is did he see did he know the whole time that he was going to be the one that gets killed I mean that he's going to be the one that ultimately gets murdered by I mean did he see that from the first the first time he looked at his palm is that what he's carrying around with him the whole time does he I don't have, know that's, that's something I had to ask is like does he know that it's going to be him and he just lets fate because he doesn't believe being because the curse of being a fortune teller is you, you, you probably come right, to believe that right. you can't escape fate so and, and that he does, there is some of the dialogue there that kind of gives you the impression that that is his way, that's his vision of the world. Mm-hmm. That's the way he looks at things. Yeah. And there was a part of me that kept wanting to see uh, some kind of aspect of, uh, of the palmist's uh, character because he has all those damn cats in the in his in his place. Yeah, he has those cats all over the place, and he's he's always picking one up and petting it. He's sitting sitting down and petting it, and the cats are all over you know, all over yeah. the uh, his his, uh, his yeah. flat there, and it's um, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. I can never figure out if that was if that was supposed to be some kind of telling detail about the way he either looks at life or thinks about mm-hmm. the thinks about mm-hmm. uh, this ability that he has or something of that nature. I don't know, mm-hmm. but. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure there is something there about him having all those cats in the place that that, <laughs> that, that is, uh, you know, that is presented as yeah. a detail of evidence of something. You yeah. Know, so maybe that he can't have any human friends because he knows everything's going to happen to them. Ultimately, oh. that drives everybody away. Like he, they're too uncomfortable to be. He's he's a life of parties. You know, he's fun to have at your party to entertain your guests, but maybe he can't have any human, any yeah. real social interactions with anybody because of because he'll drive them all away because he knows they know he knows what what their fate is, what's going to happen to him. That's that's not a bad. Mm. Yeah, yeah. He didn't have to worry about the fate of the cats. Right, right. Well, first of all, they don't have palms, yeah. so you can't read them. <laughs> the palm reader. Yeah. Uh, this is. Uh, I'll just I'll just put it this way: the screenplay's working out of this entire situation is both enjoyably sardonic and genuinely unnerving. Playing with the questions of destiny and self-fulfilling prophecy, as Tyler's initial skepticism becomes first denial, then reluctant acceptance, and then wholehearted belief, and it does allow for this incredible dual performance from Edward G. Robinson. Uh, he he begins to have conversations with his own worst nature in the form of his own reflection which argues that if his fate is unavoidable, his most practical course of action is to embrace it, indeed to rush to meet it. If he is destined to murder someone, why then he should do so quickly, get it over with, then he and Rowena can be married and live happily ever after. (laughs) And 
you can see, you can follow the trail of thought. Yeah. You yeah. can see what he thinks. So says, well, I can't avoid it. If yeah. it's going to happen, then I need to at least control, you know, I, it's, it's like bowling. I can't knock all the pins down, but I can make sure I knock most of them down, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right? Am I wrong? Can I do that? Yeah. So I can just aim really hard at the center pin, and maybe who would be the center pin? Someone who is already near the end of their life, you know, yeah. and he's just starting, he's uh, yeah, starting yeah. That, that thought process, thought process immediately <laughs> yeah. starts winding its way through your head. But when his, but when his outer, when his, his, his voice that he's having his conversations with, when he starts to center in on the, the, the the lady that's hosted you know the lady right. that's his acquaintance there he, you know at one point I think the his 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 evil self even says something about it she's kind of something to the point that she's annoying isn't she or she just doesn't she just uh-huh. get, you know that kind of so you're starting to sort of see like he keeps trying to, he, he's, he's clearly trying to inflate certain yeah, certain yeah. attributes of this obviously nice lady yeah into something that he can use to justify his actions mm-hmm. and I think that I think that's fantastic and I think that it also shows how his goal, which mm-hmm. is to marry Rowena, mm-hmm. um, he's overlooking. He's he's looking so far downrange at that goal that the that he's tripping himself up by something that Rowena then points out once once the old lady has died, mm-hmm. pointing out that this totally upsets Rowena. This destroys her. This is really upsetting for yeah, her because yeah, yeah. this woman was a big part of her life. Was her mm-hmm. god? Yeah. Was her godmother? Yeah. And that is something that had never entered the lawyer's head. It right. had not occurred exactly. to him yeah. what this woman's death is going to do to the woman that I profess to be in love with. Right. He just skipped right past him at completely. <laughs> and I, I think I think that's a I think that's a great little. De- yeah. It's not even a little detail. It's a major detail when you realize. Uh, that's, Dude, that's like you didn't even wow. How, you, yeah. You're not you're you, you you think you've got your eyes on the prize and you're tripping over hurdles, man. You're yeah. you're, you're making major mistakes, <laughs> major 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 mistakes. Uh, I have to say that I I, I kind of I did crack up at the scene where he's going to get the poison that he's going to kill oh, yeah. the woman with. It just love that scene where he's uh where, where he's, he's getting it from the apothecarist, I guess, or whatever. But where he says uh. He's going to use it on a, uh, a dog in the neighborhood or something like a neighbor dog has it some like some rabid because of a rabid rabid mastiff story that he's yes. playing on poison. I was sitting there thinking like as a lawyer, you ought to know that's pretty thin, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty thin. You, you want to go with you want to go with bland yeah bland story yeah few, fewest details as possible yeah. You know, the minute you've named a breed, yeah, you're already stepping over a line. That's that's something people are going to remember. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you got you got to think long and hard about this, dude. Come on. <laughs> well, anyway, the uh, uh, I, I did I did I did think I'd forgotten the details of the story. Of course, mm-hmm. so we're yeah. watching this to when it turns out that of course that the that Lady Carrington had died of natural causes that she never ingested yeah, the right, uh, the candy right. with the, the poison in it. Yeah. Uh, that that's that's an amazing moment, moment where he immediately feels relief. He's oh my god, thank goodness I'm not a murderer. And then he realizes, oh shit, oh, no, <laughs> we've already we've already yeah. arranged the marriage. Yeah, I've got to get this done. Yeah, I've got to I've, kill somebody else. Who, I, who can who can I kill? <laughs> and I have to admit <laughs> that um, his encounter with the elderly priest, the uh, the the drinking with the elderly priest, oh, and that's uh, a great. It is a great scene is. that really carries massive weight. Yeah. When it's because, because once again because of the actor playing the priest, yeah. who is able to just turn and immediately surmise his own danger, and just verbally stop things. Mm-hmm. That that was that's an amazing sequence. I think yeah. that's just really really good, and 
Robinson sells that oh, so, so brilliantly. Yeah. That whole scene is so suspenseful. Yes. The whole time you're just intense, you know, waiting for what's waiting what's for what's happen. about to happen. Yeah. It's like, and you have to love his. I mean, his his justification for then killing the priest is he's literally hearing him speak, making this very nice religious, you know, very you know beautiful, you know, sermon or whatever he's doing. And, right. and he, so he sits there thinking like, oh, he really believes this. Stuff so he he can't wait to get to heaven so okay, <laughs> yes, then we do him a favor by well, that's, that's, that's like... that, that, that whole the whole trying desperately to find a nail yeah. to hang this yeah. to hang this portrait on mm-hmm. you know the portrait being mm-hmm. I got to kill somebody yeah. he's like he's desperate for anything anything yeah. anything yeah. anything anything any way to justify himself it's amazing I just <laughs> I, I think it is brilliant and there's I love I love the entire story I love the way it the way it unfolds I love when we get to the point where he's chased into a damn circus mm-hmm. uh, as a murderer yeah I mean it's yeah so he doesn't so he doesn't kill the priest so no okay. he does not kill so, the priest he yeah. backs down he cannot do twice it twice he hasn't killed he hasn't yep. committed murder he still hasn't technically he still hasn't shed blood but as he hesitates thinking that maybe it might be best if he ended his own life mm-hmm. Once again, the theme of yeah. of suicide, and that is a good tie back to the what yeah. would have been the first two stories, and right. but the one we've already seen. So. But who should come walking along? But uh, old Septimus Podgers himself, the palmist. Mm-hmm. They run into each other on a bridge over a river, and you know, really, only one of them is going to walk off that bridge, mm-hmm. and that that is kind of fantastic, and it does point to. Whether or not Podgers saw who his victim would be or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and to me, it's this is my favorite part of the film because I mean, just because of how I think it's brilliant storytelling and and psychologically so intense and so layered is 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 you know this idea like we said he hasn't shed blood to this point. Podgers starts telling him I was wrong, my, my I saw it wrong, my my, my palm yeah. reading, you know, you're you're off the hook. So all along he's chosen to believe Podgers. Right. Here's the point where he could, he has one more chance to choose to believe him and he would be totally free of this because he hasn't killed anybody yet. He hasn't done anything. So all, yeah. he, all he has to do is just make the choice at this point, okay, I believed him at this point, so I'm going to believe him now when he tells me that he was wrong and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm done. You know, I walk I can, away. I don't do, and he can't and he doesn't. So then what do we have to make of, of that, of what's really inside him? What was his real character? You know, what was his real right. nature? Right. And, you know, and I think that to me, you know, it talks about how there's there's not any real strong, obvious overlying themes through all these stories, but there are some you can play with, and I think one of I think one of the key ones is the idea of destiny, fate, whatever versus self determinism. Self, you know, and, right, and right. here's I think one of the high points in the film where it really comes down to just this, you know, where it's really in stark relief here. You know, this yeah, whole in idea the, in of, that like, moment, yeah, he's totally convinced of fate. Whereas he had been totally convinced of, of, of self-determinism earlier in the story, if he had stuck to that, you know, he could have escaped. Yeah, if he had, if he had, if he had stepped back into the, the realistic view of the world mm-hmm. around him that he mm-hmm. started out with, the one yeah. that he had lived his entire life under, mm-hmm. he could, they could have both walked off that bridge and gone and had yeah. a drink and yeah. Yeah. had, a, you know, and, and and shot the shit about anything and just had a good evening. Mm-hmm. It would have been over, mm-hmm. but he can't. By yeah. then. He's he mentally he's traveled too yeah. far down that path. He's acted repeatedly mm-hmm. on his new belief system, 
And like a religious convert, he can't turn it loose. Yeah, because he's seen, now that he's seen the worst in himself, and right. seen his ability his, that he could be a murderer, now he can't believe better about himself. He can't right. believe he could escape his fate. He can't believe that, that because he's, he's he already Because ta- he's already taken actions that, yeah. even if no one else ever knows about them, he knows about them, and he knows that he was, yeah. go- he was willing to do that truly horrible thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's it's a fast. It is a fantastic story. It is easily the highlight of the film, and it's mm. just one that I think is an absolute pleasure from start to finish. And uh, I don't think that we're, we're we're far from being the only ones who feel that way yeah. about this story. I think it's I think it's phenomenal. Are you expecting somebody? Oh, some relatives. I was hoping I wouldn't have to meet. You see, no one came, friends or foes. I'm all you have left. Goodbye, Paul. Oh, darling, I know a little bar on 52nd Street. Can you make it at one, Paul? No, Paul. Well, at three o'clock, then. No. What about dinner? Eight o'clock? No, darling. But you'll come tomorrow night for the opening. You seem very cheerful. I am. Have you ever been happily disappointed? Did something happen? No, something did not happen. How do you do? Uh, Paul, you know, I've been thinking, maybe you ought to rehearse that old act of yours before you go on. You haven't done it in a long time. Oh, that's right. All right. Wait a minute. Old act? What old act? I'm doing my regular act. You've changed your mind? I thought you said... Never mind what I said. I'm doing my regular act. Paul, you're not going to do it. I never said I wouldn't. And you want me to come? Of course, you've got to come. You know what may happen if I'm there. Yes, I'll be terribly happy. No, no, I mean... What about your dream? <laughs> Dreams lie. I know. I know that now. You'll come, won't you? I don't know. Goodbye, darling. Well, at the end of that second story, the centerpiece story of this particular film, we, of course, uh, have our main character being chased into a circus. Mm-hmm. And that is how his story ends. And that is how our third story begins. Um, After witnessing an accident on a London street, aerialist Paul Gaspar, played by Charles Boyer, Mm -hmm. who works in the circus, that's where he does his act. And he produced this film, actually. Yeah, he was one of the producers of this Mm -hmm. film. And from what I am told, there's a a story about one of the the, the men who built the masks for the Mardi Gras segment. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Boyer, Boyer uh, he, he rolled up his sleeves and came in and like helped out. Oh wow, that's good. Make, making those things, he he got, oh. he got his hands dirty. You know, <laughs> really, really jo- joined in making those things because they oh, were a little good. behind on production. He was <laughs> one of the producers of the film. He just like yeah. apparently seemed to enjoy it. And the, the guy who uh, the guy who was uh, in charge of those and made the most made most of them mm-hmm. uh, recounted that story. It was just like you know, this is this is a guy who was you know he, yeah he's a big movie star but he mm-hmm. was like no 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 we need to get these done he just mm-hmm. jumped in and, and worked on them so yeah. I think that's pretty cool but uh, Charles Boyer returns to his circus and to rest before his performance that night he does an act in which he is known as the drunken gentleman of the tightrope Gaspar's dangerous high wire act climaxes with his netless leap from one rope to another one roughly mm. 10 feet below it. It's a, it's a death-defying thing, and it's, a, it's an impressive idea for an act. Uh, even more impressive than the whole idea of someone intentionally wobbling and weaving yeah. over, you know, on, yeah. a, on, a, on a high wire, you know, mm. Mm. dozens of feet above the ground. 
uh, without a net, yeah. one might say. Yeah. That is what adds the extra danger and really seems to kind of amp up the crowd every time he performs. Well, falling into a doze, Gaspar experiences a terrifying dream. His own death plunge during his act, watched from the crowd by a beautiful woman wearing distinctive lyre-shaped earrings who screams in horror, and he remembers her face very distinctly. And wouldn't you if it was Barbara Stanwyck? I guess I guess I would. If you were, if, if a movie star was watching me die wearing really distinctive earrings, I'd probably remember it. Yeah. <laughs> so what we have here in this third story is, once again, the idea of dreams yes. and their prophetic ability. Mm-hmm. Do you, as an audience member, believe dreams can foretell mm-hmm. the future? Or are dreams just... Figments of our imaginations, you know, uh, mm-hmm. an odd blit of an odd mm-hmm. blob of mustard that's causing <laughs> digestive problems, or a digestive bit of potato, right? Yeah. Per- perhaps a bit of gas one needs mm. to expel that's causing <laughs> one perhaps a rumbly tumbly in the bummy dummy. Who knows? <laughs> but we have before us a man who, unfortunately, does lose his nerve after having this dream, seeing himself fall during his act. He does back out. Mm-hmm at the last minute of that leap from one high wire to the lower high wire. He does not do it, therefore disappointing the crowd considerably, causing our aerialist uh, friend, I guess we'd call him a friend, he's just the main character of the story, to, to express the fact that he might have to go back to a different version of his act that he did years before that... Uh, might be you know might be less you know dangerously appealing to the mm-hmm. public, mm-hmm. and the interesting the, the the interesting thing is that uh, honestly he's he's this is fully accepted by his employer the man who actually owns and runs the circus yeah. he's actually he he he's, he feels that it kind of takes a little bit of the weight off of his shoulders because he has always felt that it was an, an extraordinarily dangerous act yeah. Yeah. and that him reeling it back in a little bit will make him a little happier he says maybe you can still do the act but just with a net under you mm-hmm. you know even mm-hmm. that if you wanted to do it that yeah. way too yeah so the man is Gaspar is in no way going to be losing his job or worried worried about his future or anything of that nature. So what happens next? Ah, the circus. That was the last night of the circus there in London. And they're traveling by uh, boat across to the continent of Europe to, to go to the next place where the circus will set up tents and begin to do their acts. And who should we find on this boat? But believe it or not, Barbara Stanwyck. Yeah. And uh, undeniably, he recognizes her from her dream. Gaspar is a little stunned. Mm. He's kind of mollified. His fear's kind of lighter than it normally would be for someone who's honestly deciding to make a major life change in his work Mm -hmm. because of a dream. He's not that worried because, well... Yeah, it does seem to be the same woman I saw in my dream, but she's not wearing those distinctive earrings. Mm-hmm. Until it turns out that she does have yes, a pair of earrings that are exactly the way he describes to mm-hmm. her once they get to know each other. And that starts freaking her out, because first she thinks he's just throwing her some really uh, uh, well-constructed yep. pickup lines, you know, when he's telling her how he's seen her in his dreams and all this. <laughs> which is nat- which is natural enough. I mean, yeah, you, right. get, you know, these are these are two single people who run mm-hmm. across each other on a, on a, mm-hmm. uh, a an ocean voyage. You know, okay, we're going to flirt. It's mm-hmm. going it's going to be that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. But uh, quickly enough turns out that she she believes him. He convinces mm-hmm. her. 
The woman's name is Joan Stanley. And like I said, she's at first inclined to take uh, Gaspar's pursuit of her in, uh, you know, the, the typical cynical spirit of someone who's seeing that uh, eh, harmless shipboard flirtation is not that big a deal. Tilly mentions earrings. She has such a pair of earrings, but she has never yet worn them. Now, as the two get to know each other, they compare travel stories and realize that they have just been missing each other all around the world for several years at this point. Mm-hmm. And I like the way in which they introduce that, where he at first, when he first talks to her on on, on board the ship, um, asks where they may have met each other because he saw her, he, he, her face was in his dream, so he must have run across her sometime before. And she denies having been to any of the places that he reels off. And then once we follow her back to her uh, her uh, stateroom, her, her room there, we see uh, uh, the the various stickers of all the places <laughs> she's been, and almost all of them are ones that he named yeah. that she's obviously been to. Yep. A good bit of cinematic storytelling, shorthand for she's being canny. She's not going to admit. She's going to let the flirtation go just so far. But mm-hmm. then, as the story progresses. They really do seem to really enjoy each other's company, and it becomes that very natural thing, the shipboard romance. Mm-hmm. Uh, even as they fall in love, she refuses to answer questions about herself or her past. And as they approach New York, she tells Gasp, oh, they were going to New York, not Europe. Pardon me. No, that's right. <laughs> Pardon me. I was wrong. That's why it's a several days journey. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't take that long to get across the freaking channel. Even, <laughs> if, you're going to, even if you were going to Italy, down the Medi- up the Mediterranean. So anyway, anyway. So as they approach New York, she tells Gasper firmly that theirs is simply a shipboard fling. Once they dock, she she doesn't intend to see him again. This uh, this confuses Gaspar uh, because he honestly thought that they were they were kindling something here that had the the chance to be something lasting. Um, and as they're walking around the deck, there uh, a man greets Joan as Miss Templeton. She tells him coolly that he is mistaken, but the impression remains. The upshot of Gaspar's disturbed state of mind is that he has another dream, though. Mm -hmm. This time in it, Joan is is there, but in distress. She's being pursued. She's being hailed on all fronts as Miss Templeton. That Mm -hmm. name has stuck in his mind. Mm -hmm. When he calls her Miss Templeton, she laughs at him in the dream. But no one is laughing as handcuffs close around Joan's wrist in the dream. And sure enough, the next morning, the details of Gaspar's dream begin to come true, all except that last bit. Joan leaves the shipping terminal without incident, so relieved is Gaspar to have this dream proven wrong that not even Joan's attempt to go on giving him the cold shoulder can really tamp down how happy he is. He's like, oh, thank God, okay, this is... <laughs> And when uh, he he next uh, has a conversation with uh, King Lamar, the guy who owns and runs the the circus, mm-hmm. he uh, he tells him he says, you know, we were talking about reverting to an earlier form of my act, the kind of less dangerous thing, and he just kind of waves it away and he says, you know, honestly, no, I'm going to go on with the drunk the drunken gentleman, the the, the crowd pleaser act because yeah. honestly, this you know my fears stemming yeah. from a dream is ridiculous. It's completely ridiculous. And sure enough, his new confidence does carry him through his his act the next time he does it. Wire leap and all, man. Mm-hmm. He's got his mojo back. He mm-hmm. is he's working it. But afterwards, re- re- relieved with uh, relieved in the extreme, Joan 
threads her way out of the audience of the circus and asks directions to his trailer. She's on her way when two men approach her. One addresses her as Miss Templeton. The other produces a pair of handcuffs. And this is when we learn that she was a participant in a, uh, a daring theft, the only one who hasn't been apprehended as of yet. And she cuts a deal so that she can say goodbye to Gaspar, explain her situation honestly. Mm-hmm. And uh, the story concludes with her being led off to jail to spend a few years there. Mm-hmm. But in an interesting film reversal, <laughs> with Gaspar pledging to wait for her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so kind of, a, kind of an interesting uh, gender flip there. Uh, mm-hmm. t- standard Hollywood trope of the... The, the long-suffering, beloved female mm-hmm, mm-hmm. waiting outside the jailhouse door, crying, mm-hmm. knowing that she'll have to wait years before she can be with her man again. Mm-hmm. Nope, this story ends with the, the gender flip on that. So, interesting. Yeah. Well, before we go back for the final, final little segment here that wraps the story up, which is just, you know, the mm-hmm. end of the framing device, really. Right. Um. I think this is uh, this is easily the second best story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that uh, I, th- I like its I like the story and I like its construction. Even though when we get to the end, I feel as if the I think it, it feels a bit muted mm-hmm. in its mm-hmm. effect. Yeah, it yeah. feels a bit muted in what it probably could have been without uh, the restrictions mm. of the Hayes Code mm. kind of tamping down on the darker aspects of yeah. this story and what it could have been. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's be blunt. If you're an adult watching this, you realize that their shipboard fling mm-hmm. was very much a sexual thing. Mm-hmm. But, of course, they have to walk oh, a yeah, very fine line, yeah. a very careful yeah. line here. I mean, why else would Gaspar be so convinced that they were going to continue a relationship once they docked in New York mm-hmm. unless mm-hmm. they had been yeah, spending more their than just evening? Get, yeah. yeah, they did more than just sit on the deck and watch the waves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They did more than eat a few meals together <laughs> yeah. and, and lightly dance around and be <laughs> amused. They were having sex. So the reactions of an adult to this story are going to be those of, oh, okay, okay, so mm-hmm. things are being hidden off screen. We're not being told mm-hmm. you know, certain mm-hmm. details because they were mm-hmm. just not allowed to. Yeah. But at the same time, the that, that's, that I think is, to a large extent, especially for cinema fans, completely forgivable. You know mm-hmm. what you can and can't do. Yeah. But of course, where sure. I think I feel this, the hand of the censor creeping in a little too strongly is the muted ending where... Mm-hmm. I am amused by the gender swap on mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, who's waiting for whom to get yeah. out of prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do feel that that, that that really feels like a compromise ending where I can almost see the, the rather fiery character that we're, we're maybe being led to believe. And we're talking about Barbara Stanwyck mm-hmm. playing a character yeah. here. Yeah. I can honestly see her... Maybe the original ending has her being some kind, you know, trying to get away. Uh, See, well, because even in the dream, he saw her being chased. Yeah, by, you know, so yeah, not just being chased, but being chased in a way that yeah. ends up in her either accidental death mm-hmm. to to kind of mollify mm-hmm. a certain mm-hmm. area of the censors the mm-hmm. way they think about these kind of things. Right. So she is paying for her mm-hmm. for aw- her awfulness or. Possibly being gunned down or mm-hmm. hit by a car or you know, something along the lines of where there isn't that muted happy ending that this one has where these mm. two people have pledged their lives together and are willing to mm. are willing to wait 
for mm-hmm. it to be, you know, quote unquote, consummated in a marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just feel that if it that if it had a harsher ending, if it, yeah. if it were more, I'm not necessarily needing violence, but even, I'm thinking more of a, a noir yeah. ending, you know, yeah. a downbeat ending. I'm sorry, does she even tell him? And maybe I'm just my memory's going fuzzy. Does she even tell him that she's going to jail? I mean, does she even tell him that specifically that she's being about to be arrested? I almost feel like she just tells him. I'm going away, and maybe we're led to believe that he knows what she's talking about, but I'm not sure that she ever actually even... You know, now you're making me doubt my memory, but I I, I think he's I think he's aware, well, he's even if she's dream. not Well, because he's dreamed it. He's yeah. seen in the dream that handcuffs right. going on, so I right. guess that's how he's... She does, but I just feel like, yeah, that... That that would be something again about you talking about it kind of softening the end there. And I was I don't right. think that she even tells him, yeah, I'm going to the slammer by the way, and you know because I committed a crime. That you almost feel like she's more vague than that, you know. But I guess we're supposed to believe that he kind of knows. Well, yeah, what she's I, saying. I, I think that if if that is the case, and I would have to go back and, and yeah, listen, I would have to listen too. to those maybe, passages yeah. of dialogue oh. a, 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 again. But the idea that uh, he definitely knows what's going on here, and he knows that there will be a passage of time mm. measured in years. That he will have to wait for her to be free again. Mm-hmm. So, uh, whether or not that's something he's just surmising from, um, you know, the the uh, the, f- the false name mm-hmm. of Joan Stanley mm-hmm. versus you know Miss Templeton or whatever, uh, I think it does also get weird with the idea that he now has poo pooed the idea of dreams being able to foretell things enough so that he has his confidence back to do his act. Yeah. But at the same time, he foresaw in a dream the fact that she would be slapped in handcuffs and taken away, and that has come true. Yeah, yeah. So his death from the high wire may be something that was originally going to be happening here Mm. at the end as well. Mm, Maybe Maybe she's in handcuffs and watches him die. That's a Mm. dark-ass ending there. Maybe it's the sight of her in handcuffs that makes him fall. Yeah. See what I mean about? Yeah, you, you expected there to be something that's going to be more, right? More of a kind of a punt, like dramatic, like here's where it all comes. together. Yeah, here's where it, it all sort of comes together. Like in, sort of, well, okay, well, here's where it all comes together in horrible tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then, of course, I think that by softening it, they almost kind of do have to have the framing device come in and say, "See, it's about fate and how you, you know, mm. fate, you, you can overcome fate. And it's that war between fate and individual uh, will and the way you can change things just yeah. because you, you think something is going to go in some particular way. No one, you know, no one's life is ruled by, you know, the the consequences of some predestined, predestined future. Mm. You know, you can, you can make your own way. Uh, it kind of ties those things. It kind of, th- that story ties to the story right before it in the sense in the second story, Edward G. Robinson chooses to believe in fate. Right. Whereas here, these characters kind of choose to push aside and, and say, no, we're going to, you know, we're not going to let our dreams, we're not going to let prop, any of these prophecies rule what see, we're going see, to that, do. That, that is a good contrast, I'll admit. The yeah. way the film stands right. presents an excellent contrast between someone bowing to fate mm-hmm. and just trying to just trying to, to, to kind of shave the edges off the fate. You know, if yeah. I'm going to have to do this horrible thing, then I will try to control it enough so that it's done. You know, that mm. if I'm fated to do this thing, I'll do it. But I'm going to try to to kind of make it. I'm going to soften it some way. Yeah. I'm going to find a way to make it something that I can live with, so mm. so to speak. Whereas this final story is more along the lines of people who've decided whether or not I can. You know, I can I, whether or not I believe that I foresaw the future in a dream. Mm. 
it doesn't matter. We're mm-hmm. going we're going to muscle through. We're going to push mm-hmm. through, and just because of that, that's not going to stop us. So that that is a that does set up as the way that the way the film stands a good contrast between the philosophical underpinnings of the mm-hmm. endings of yeah. those two stories, and that's yeah. kind of neat. Mm-hmm. I do like that. It still does feel. I have to admit, just maybe it's just from the fact that this film is so beautifully shot. It does feel so much like so many of the fantastic crime films from the period mm-hmm. oh, where, yeah. where I keep imagining so many dark scenarios well, that yeah. could have played out and made the story uh, uh, you know, so insanely downbeat and, <laughs> and, and nasty. Yeah, but, and I do, I do, I love the, I think the tightrope sequences are fantastic. I they mean, are. Just the yeah. filming on those are great. Uh, yep. One of my favorite individual shots from the entire uh Film is it is is here where you know when he's finally doing his his act at the in the, the last sequence where he's doing the acting he's going to do the jump that and it's showing you know all the tension building of whether he's going to do it and it's showing all the people in the crowd and cutting to faces yes where it cuts to the two men two guys watching looking up at him and and one's in the foreground one's in the background they're both like chewing gum and they both slowly their gum chewing goes slower and slower till they both just their jaws uh-huh. just both stop at the same time and they're both you know frozen watch i think it's a great it's moment fa- it's fantastic like, yeah. Image, yeah. yeah 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 the uh, uh and, and i think they emphasize also in those shots i think it's interesting that they emphasize the different ages of the people like the kids that eat mm-hmm. popcorn mm-hmm. And, you know yeah. different different ages of people the different you know different uh, ages of adults mm-hmm. and things like that anyway it's it's a uh, it's it's fantastic filmmaking, regardless of how we how we end up feeling about slicing the the, mm-hmm. the 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 specifics of the ending of this particular story to one degree or another, or wondering what it would have been like if if it had gone you know this way rather than that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it is such, this is uh, it's 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 fascinating stuff, and I guess that brings us uh, to. The uh, the uh, end of the framing device here. The end of the we were mm. returned to Robert Benchley. Uh, they're uh, wrapping up this story where the two of them kind of give their uh, the, our two characters there in the in the gentlemen's club give their impressions of what uh, what these three stories kind of mean to them. And uh, we wrap it up with a with a with a very funny uh, example of Robert Benchley, uh, uh, whose character pretends to not believe in any kind of superstitious claptrap or BS of any mm. type, and then, mm. of course, refuse to walk under a, a ladder. Yeah, and I think I think I want to revise a little bit of what I said earlier. When I don't sure. think it's that I think the weakness of the framing device isn't that it didn't address the themes of the stories. I think it's more that I kind of expected the framing device at the end to kind of deal more directly with Robert Benchley's character and what he's talked about and kind of show. Right, whether it applies to him or not, like I thought it was going because usually that's how framing devices work. Is you know, is they kind of set up each story, but they tell kind of a continuing story of their own, and then at the end, kind of pays off in some sort of way. And I don't really feel and like this one story, does not because he comes in talking yeah. about these couple of dreams he's had and and how and, and well, I the, thought the, the dream very, and the fortune teller. Yeah, I thought so we don't. We're it, gonna, we, we, it yeah. almost, I was waiting for a wrap up where he's yes. like, you know, where he where he might like makes the statement. It doesn't matter which is right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. which in, which mm-hmm. thing ends up happening. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't address it directly. He just you know he yeah. just so yeah. snaps his finger at the the whole idea of superstition. Mm-hmm. Then demonstrates that he does retain yeah. a lot of the standard superstitious feelings that most people in our society have. Yeah, and I did like that last scene of uh, sidestepping the ladder. But I think that's just for me. It wasn't. It just you know didn't. I agree. Just, just no, didn't have yeah. much of a pay, yeah. Just didn't have much of a kind of. It at the doesn't end of like, have a pay. It doesn't have the kind of payoff that you think that that will, that will put a. They'll put a kind of metaphorical bow on the yeah. entire affair. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's a nice little you know grin or mm-hmm. slight chuckle, and then credits roll and we're out of there. 
Yeah. And it, it almost feels like the uh, the weight of the themes being addressed in all three of the stories in this really kind of needed there need, needed uh, more than just a you know mm-hmm. uh, don't walk under the ladder joke or mm-hmm. someone you know being superstitious kind of at the end. You're right. If if there were more of a, uh, I mean, I I certainly cannot imagine what the uh, the uh, voiceover wrap-up would have been at the end of the the original version of this story. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that they mm-hmm. necessarily settled on specifically what mm-hmm. the uh, the the voiceover would have been. Although there, uh, I have read a, a little bit about some of the some of the people that were being considered to do the voiceover mm-hmm. as they were making the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes a question of not really putting a you know not really you know sticking the landing to a large degree mm. uh, with the framing device yeah. and and I agree with you I, th- mm. I, I think that that is true uh, I think that but to do that I think they they kind of uh, they're trying to hedge their bets by having Robert Benchley and by it being a kind of amusing mm-hmm. framing yeah. device instead of it being a serious one mm-hmm. so by moving away from the voiceover where they could be deadly serious they could deliver some kind of dark yeah. image there at the end and then put a bow on it that that uh, leaves uh, you know leaves ambiguous the idea of the difference between you know uh, fate or prophecy or yeah. the, the but your belief in the, the ability of dreams to foretell the future anything of those any, any of those ideas but it kind of it, it shifts it away from that and into an area that feels a lot more uh, safe mm-hmm. and therefore kind of mutes the entire affair to a degree. Not any way, not enough by any stretch of the imagination for me to not like this movie. Oh, I no, think this no, is no, a no. phenomenal oh, movie. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I did. And and uh, it's something amusing that I was discovered as I, because I was going through the cast and, and crew, and, you know, I was just think, I was thinking, you know, we talk about how this just so feels, not feels like a universal 40s horror film. Oh, and that God, was intentional. I, yeah. I mean, the, the cast just blows you away. Every time you say those names, you're just like, oh my God, these are people whose careers Charles are already Boy, I mean, these were big stars at yeah. this time. To such a degree that I couldn't even, I could barely find any of the bit players who had any other connection to Universal Universal Horror. Yeah. Um, one yeah. that I did find was a uh, 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 Charles Muse, uh, who plays the um, Charles Boyer's, I guess his his porter or whatever, in his in his his assistant in his tent, you know, in his right. in his. Uh, uh, played uh, was actually in Sherlock Holmes in Washington. Uh, that oh, that's true. Seen. Yeah. He was the only one that I could find that we've already seen, and the only other one we haven't seen yet, or in a, well, we'll see in, in, when we get to the Inner Sanctum series. Uh, I, I thought that it was uh, funny that uh, David Hoffman, who's there with Robert Benchley in the framing device, the guy he's talking to throughout the framing device, uh, he, it's, it actually will be his face. Do you remember the Inner Sanctum films? I always start with the little face in oh, the crystal ball. yeah. That's him there, yeah. So, so, uh, oh, but, but those are the only two real connections I could find any other of the Universal series, a uh, horror series. So, it just shows you how far they went out of their way to distance uh, this, you know, from from that those those uh, the, those Saturday matinee sixty minutes yeah. there, you know. Oh, that's very true. The fact this is ninety minutes, I'm assuming this was not even released on a double bill of any kind. Although I could be wrong about that. Uh, you not know, to the best of my knowledge, I'll be honest. I don't think so. I think this was given the full A list treatment. Yeah, yeah. It, may, it may have been put on. You know, there may have been a uh, a second second feature, but not one. I'm, I'm not that I'm aware of, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, this I think would have gone out as an A picture, and therefore. Would have uh, probably have been the the centerpiece of you know, you know newsreel newsreel at the beginning, mm-hmm. maybe a cartoon, yeah, yeah, a short subject of some point some part. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not I'm not really sure to be honest. Remember, this was certainly an A list film. When you think about the fact that Charles Boyer 
was paid $125,000 to be in this film. No, nah, no. Nah. Okay. That's the price of one of the other Universal films, just about. <laughs> yeah. Edward G. Robinson and Barbara Stanwyck were paid 50000 bucks a piece to be in this film. Mm-hmm. This was an expensive, an expensive picture. Mm-hmm. They were spending money. I mean, right there, you have more money than was spent on, mm-hmm. I swear to you, that's more money than was spent on Son of Dracula, which is the next film that we yeah, cover in this right, series. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the, your, your enjoyment of this mm-hmm. over that, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's a question of taste and, right. and, and mm-hmm. uh, your, your deliberate feelings about monsters one way or the other. Mm-hmm. But the fact that this looks like the high budget film that it was mm-hmm. is is a wonderful thing and also once again it's one of those questions where you're going why did Universal not put this out on Blu-ray themselves well you, you bring up something I was going to just uh, say definitely before we before we finished up I wanted to make sure I got this thought out is this because this is this is film history for you and how bizarre it can be is you know this film they obviously at the time it was made went out of their way to make sure that it was not associated with these kind of sordid Saturday matinee <laughs> yeah, kiddies films, yeah. 60 minute kiddie films. You know, this is our big, you know, we're pushing this. You talked about how much money they spent on just advertising, you know. Right. They were pushing this as like, we're proud of this film here. Now, 80 years later, look how much they've milked all those other oh, God. films. And this one has been, is the forgotten one. I mean, how odd is that? Well, uh, exactly. This is the forgotten one that mm-hmm. wasn't as big a success as mm-hmm. they wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. And yet, They've recouped the profits off those little bitty, you know, programmer monster movies a hundred thousand times over. Mm -hmm. Whereas this one, they're not even attempting to make money off of it these days, it seems. I mean, hell, it's coming out on Vinegar Syndrome, which is a great label. Which means that that they they licensed it out. Yeah, yeah. It's like, no, you can't have Son of Dracula, but we'll give you Flesh and Fantasy, you know. Yeah, they're not. They're not going to turn loose of one of their their monster mm-hmm. movies. No, they're making. No. They're, they're making money releasing. You know, releasing yeah. and re-releasing them occasionally, no matter what. Yeah, uh, I, I'm still a little surprised uh, mm-hmm. that they allowed a different company to put out the Six Inner Sanctum films. To be honest with you, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, seems to me that there's you know the fact that they wouldn't key off the fact that Lon Chaney Jr. is in all of them, mm-hmm. and you know do something themselves is really kind of crazy. But I'll be honest. If we get a really great Blu-ray of Flesh and Fantasy and it does well enough for right. Vinegar Syndrome, word is that they are looking, they're going to be looking into doing those kinds of films more and more down the road. Right. And to be honest, hey, go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do mm-hmm. it. If you can pick off some of these little gems, these little underseen movies from these studios from the 40s and the 50s, whenever they, whatever they decide to start doing. Because maybe they, I, maybe yeah. I should buy two copies. Cause you know? they'll, yeah, because they'll be because any film like that comes out, you already know is going to be given much more special treatment, much more special features than Universal would ever give them if they put them out. Exactly. Know? So exactly. Yeah. I tell you one thing with this Flesh and Fantasy. Well, I, I, I when I knew Vinegar Syndrome was coming out with it, and then after I read the history of its uh, making, I, I I went and thought like, yeah, this looks like a great set. I went back to look at it to see if by chance they were putting Destiny on it, which would have been wonderful if they oh, could have that done that. Would be if nice, they could have included yeah. that as an extra was the Destiny film. But uh, they probably thought of it, but it, it probably just it wasn't have, available. It might have been prohibitively expensive. Yeah, you know? it might have been. I don't, know what be the vi- I don't know what the video release history of Destiny is. I don't know. Because yeah, I am, I do intend to here in the, near, the very near future track, down, track it down and yeah, see it just out of extreme too, yeah. curiosity. Yeah. Now that I know what the genesis of, you know, mm-hmm. at least 30 minutes of the, of the film was, I want to mm-hmm. see... What yeah. they made of it. Yeah. So, and to be about Reginald Laborde, I mean, that's that's a, right, that's, right. A, that's a familiar name with you know genre people, fans, anyway. So. Mm-hmm.
do you like good music? How do you like to dance? Oh yeah. Hanging out for a body shop at night in the shade. Okay, a few final thoughts on Flesh and Fantasy. On the 1 to 10 scale, where do you where do you fall for this one? Um, I'll give it a very solid 7. I okay. really liked it a lot. Yeah, I really enjoyed the film. Especially like, especially visually, I just think it's stunning. You know? and, and the cast gives great performances. Of course, how could a cast like that not? You know, it's, it's, certainly, but, certainly. Yeah, this was a really a fun thing to come across something so completely unknown to me uh, and so completely different from, I had no idea. It was, it was you know, that... Doesn't it make you feel good to it know does, that there yeah. are things like this? Yes, it's, yes. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. I know yeah. that we may realize you know there's always going to be things out there we we haven't yet discovered uh, in film which is fantastic <laughs> yeah i when when things like this happen usually for me these days it's stumbling mm-hmm. across some kind of really neat uh, pulpy underknown you know underseen and almost uh, impossible to find mm-hmm. uh, you know print of it suddenly shows up on youtube some 1930s mm-hmm murder mystery or old dark house film i've never heard of before in my life and it turns out to be a little gem yeah oh and i realize that we we never directly addressed, like we said, we were going to the question of whether this film is horror. And ah, well, that's true. That's what, kind of where I wanted to go in the wrap up. Here. Okay, okay. Well, now, yeah. my question is: I, I fall on the one to ten scale. I fall. So you catch me on the right day. Yeah. I think it's an eight. You yeah, catch me yeah. on the wrong, you know, the wrong day, and I think it's a seven. Yeah. So it's yeah. I was, I, was, there. I was teetering close to an eight. Right, right. Eight, so yeah. But let's let's go ahead. That's where I wanted to wrap up this, as far as our discussion is concerned, before we get to critics' corner, which is the whole idea of. Is this a horror movie? I mean, mm-hmm. it's we're we're covering it because it is part of the lineup in uh, the Weavers mm-hmm. and Bruna, the, the Weaver and Brunus uh, book, Universal Horrors, the studio's classic films from 1931 to 1946. Mm-hmm. So it features in that book, and therefore, just like all the Sherlock Holmes pictures made in the 40s, mm-hmm. we're covering them. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that there's any denying that this film has horrific elements. But is it a horror movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that any of those horrific elements are prevented are presented in a particularly viscerally, you know, horrifying way. You know, I mean, okay. it's, it's like like directly. Uh, certainly, but if you want to just talk about basic, I mean, there's certainly dark ideas and, and melancholy certainly. ideas. Uh, murder, of course, you know, suicide. Time you've got murder, suicide. So real life horror, sure. You know, I mean, it's it's um. There's really, there really only, I think, overtly supernatural element, other than, like you said, the, like we talked about, the, the fortune teller's seemingly convincing power yeah. in the second story. The first story is just the mass seller, who apparently was sort of a supernatural entity. Correct. So the supernatural elements are pretty dialed back in it. Um, so, so I'd say if there's horror, it's maybe just the horror of 
real life, particularly in the second film. I think the second story, if anything, if anything, if you're going to classify it as horror, I think the second story is what sells that because the yes. second story goes to that really psychologically gripping, uh, that inexorable web of that you can't escape kind of thing, which is which is a, certainly a horrifying element. The, the horror, there. the horrors of a mind turned in on itself. Yeah. So so yeah. So I mean, I think I, I mean I could accept it as being classified as a horror horror film. You know, it's 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 I think, but but. I I it's 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 tough. I could see you know I think you can make an argument that it's just it's more of a fantasy, more of like a uh, you know maybe just an exploration of psychological things or questions, uh, maybe uh, more like metaphysical questions. Metaphysical horror. Yeah, there you go. I mean, maybe that could be. Yeah, yeah. That's not that, that's not a bad way to look at it. I I metaphysical find myself dark fantasy if you want. Me- to like metaphysical that. dark fantasy. That's not a yeah. bad idea. Yeah. 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 So it feels maybe something along the. I mean, the fact that we're we're talking about one of the stories being a, an adaptation of an Oscar Wilde story, puts me in mind of the the feel of something that would be written these days by Neil Gaiman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of in that vein. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, nevertheless, uh, I I did find myself when thinking about this <laughs> thinking about this question uh, the past few days, mm-hmm. thinking in terms of how for the past ten years or so. Luckily for us, who are fans of the horror genre, it has become uh, much more easy for people who make those kinds of films to just come around and say it's a horror movie. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Jordan Peele comes out and says, "No, no, no, I'm, I, I made a horror movie. This is a horror movie. Yeah, this, this, this is a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Thank you, mm-hmm. but I, you, there, it, it is other things as well. But it's primarily mm-hmm. I'm, I'm making a horror movie." And I think that there are a lot more filmmakers who feel that way too. James Wan, he doesn't mm-hmm. beat around the bush. I'm making a horror movie. I'm mm-hmm. making horror movies. That's what I like to make. Yeah. I'll go make Aquaman too, but I do make horror movies. This is what I like to do. Yeah, we're so, kind of past the, the the time when you know when when, when people movie try to people try to use yeah. another phrase, and yeah. that's where I'm about to go. Yeah, yes. When years ago, we're talking in excess of ten to twelve years ago, where people would say, "Well, it's not a horror movie," because mm-hmm. they they didn't want to use the horror movie because it felt like you were making gutter films, mm-hmm. you were making something that was lesser than. Yeah. They would say it is a psychological thriller <laughs> but I gotta say this film could very easily be described as a psychological thriller yeah, yeah. because in every story it examines the psychological underpinnings of internalized fears and horrors mm-hmm. that's what these stories are about mm-hmm. and there are other ways to describe these stories as well don't get me wrong you don't have to think of it as a metaphysical mm. exploration of mm. the philosophical underpinnings of the fear of of the possibility of not being able to control your own mm. destiny yeah. or right. looking down looking down range and counting the days left you and wondering if there's any chance of happiness whether or not those mm. days should be best cut short by your own hand you know all of the things that creep into your mind when you start thinking about mm. really examining your own life which is what the characters in these in these three stories are, are doing they're mm. they're examining sometimes to their own detriment what they think their futures hold yeah and therefore I can say that I'm, I'm I feel safe calling it a horror movie basically because of that but once again I keep I keep mm. wanting to go it's a horror movie and a psychological thriller. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you, know, you you used to work in bookstores, so I know you're gonna know what I'm talking about. Is there were years when I would go into bookstores and you and and there wouldn't actually be a section labeled horror. Ah, you know, yeah. there'd be the science fiction section. There's the mystery section. There'd be so a fantasy section. There's fantasy. Fantasy. Sometimes the horror novels were actually just 
in just the regular fiction section, or sometimes they would be in the mystery section. Sometimes some of know. them would some of them would end up in the fiction mm-hmm. section. Yeah, but you didn't want to but bookstores. I mean, I'm not the fiction section, the, the, the fantasy section. The fantasy section, yeah, 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 yeah. But but yeah, for years, yeah, a lot of bookstores, and I'm not sure some of them may still not. But I mean, I think now it's more common that you can't actually find where last, just, where you actually yeah. labeled them horror. You know? Yeah, the last <laughs> the last time I was in a bookstore, a big chain bookstore. Uh, I was I was walking down an aisleway and I was like, oh shit, I'm in the horror section. Holy crap! Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think I think dark fantasy was one thing they used for a lot of yes. years for horror, and they still do. And they still places do places that are big enough will do that kind of genre yeah. shading yeah. where yeah. there there's like par- there's like paranormal romance, right? Yeah, which you know <laughs> oh. I need to just walk on by. <laughs> but then you do get into the yeah. dark fantasy stuff, mm-hmm. and there's like a fine dividing line trying to decide whether it's paranormal romance or dark fantasy. Mm-hmm. But then once you get into the horror thing, it's just mm-hmm. like okay. Now we're now we're talking we're talking the real thing here. This is this, this is where you're gonna find Barker and King. You know, this is, uh, <laughs> oh, and here's the whole third of the store giving over to vampire erotica. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> well, that's in the back. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's a, that's that's under plastic. Behind the you, curtain, you, yeah. You've got to present a driver's license for that. So yeah, so that's just the way that is. Okay, well let's uh, let's talk about the, the contemporary reviews of this film. Uh, in there in 1943 and 1944, I think some of these actually stretch into the next year because this was released in. Late October, but mm-hmm. um, from the New York Daily News, November the eighteenth, nineteen forty-three, written by Wanda Hale, she gives it three and a half stars. Like all of Julian Duvivier's, did we decide on how to pronounce the director? Duvivier. Duvivier? That's what I was going with. I'm totally du- wrong. But... Duvivier. Let's go with that. Yeah. Like all of his creations, an extraordinary production and a remarkable picture, immensely entertaining. All the performances are as good as you'd expect from such splendid players. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that we call that rave. Yeah, I've got to say, I, yeah. that's, it's, that's probably more positive than any review we've heard of any of the other Universal Horror. This is done, well, so. you, ain't, you ain't wrong there. <laughs> uh, Hollywood Reporter, September seventeenth. They get they get to see this early. Uh, the production is beautifully mounted and certainly imaginative, imaginatively directed. Duvivier, Duvivier, His direction is notable for its holding mood without undue emphasis on the unexplainable. What he has done is to treat fantasy in not too uncommon denominators. Hmm. Interesting, if the wording of that last sentence isn't a little weird. (laughs) Uh, Harrison's report, September the 18th, 1943. The picture has been produced artistically, and it should direct a particular appeal to class audiences as well as to those who seek something different in screen entertainment. Whether or not it will appeal to the masses is questionable. Mm-hmm. can see why they would think that, because yeah. it is yeah. it is not, uh, you know, it's not a booga-booga, mar- you know, it's not a monster right. film. So, right. yeah. New York Times, November 18th, 1943. No byline. So I can't tell you if this was written by... Our, our boy. Bosley If your interest in dreams and the predictions of fortune tellers is as indifferent as this observer's, it's Bosley. It sounds like Bosley, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. Okay. Okay, okay. He says, then the chances are you will regard this three-episode Universal production as just so much palaver. Yep. For at best, flesh and fantasy, notwithstanding its novelty, is an uneven entertainment. It starts lamely and ends in the same condition. Yeah, you can't hide from us, Bosley. That was you. <laughs> that was definitely you, dude. Or somebody aping you so <laughs> yeah. well yeah. <laughs> that you should probably have slapped them. <laughs> uh, the Motion Picture Herald, September 18th, 1943. E.A. Cunningham is the byline. A distinctly novel enterprise recalling... Divi- 
Recalling the same director's yeah. Tales <laughs> of Manhattan. <laughs> Tales of Manhattan in its episodic treatment, but entering fresh fields in its subject matter. There is no single impression. The film stands on the merits of its three separate acts, each on the appeal of its theme and on the strength of its cast. Now, that's an interesting mm. way to put it, isn't it? Mm. In yeah. other words, the three stories are distinct enough to kind of stand on their own, and that's how you'll remember them as well. That they're just a collection of three interesting yeah, stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can't tell if he liked it or not, to no. be honest. Or she, E.A. Mm. Cunningham. It could be a woman. I'm not mm. positive. But nevertheless... We, both of us, Troy and I, uh, we both enjoyed this film. We, we do recommend think, it. Yeah, I definitely get put this there. in the recommend column yeah. for sure. Yeah, most assuredly. Get out there, give Vinegar Syndrome your money, and this, <laughs> this should be an impressive set. Do they do good work? Boy, yeah. man, uh, I wish wish we were getting some kind of kickback. Yeah, me too, this. me Holy too. Shit, that'd be great. <laughs> Nevertheless, we, uh, we do have a backlog of several emails that we would like to get to, but we do realize it's going to make both uh, this episode and our evening longer than we want it to be. So mm-hmm. we're going to uh, cut short my original idea, which was to kind of do a few of these tonight and do these as part of this show. We're going to actually, once again, do a mailbag episode here very soon. It should be the episode that comes out uh, pretty quickly after this one does, in which we'll cover, uh, well, at least four or five different emails that we've gotten over the past couple of months and have been neglectfully not reading out and responding to. Uh, for which I will apologize profusely once we <laughs> actually sit down to do that particular episode. Uh, if you have anything else that you would like us to include in that mailbag episode, you've got a little bit of time, you can send it to thebloodypit at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you've got uh, some opinions on flesh and fantasy, or if you think that we have sold out and are now pimping Vinegar Syndrome Blu-rays <laughs> before they even hit the shelves... <laughs> Uh, you know, I kind of understand. Yeah, I, I really. do, but we're both excited that, that, are, that yeah. this bizarre, this, this bizarre <laughs> no. convergence of events. Yeah, where we were yeah. already slated to talk about this movie, and the fact that it gets announced mm-hmm. just a few days before we record mm-hmm. is uh, well, happy coincidence. Listen, we like it. You're all just lucky that we didn't sit on that, and then when it get then then come out and say that they actually did the Blu-ray based on our. <laughs> episode big day we're the ones who, who put the idea in their heads yeah. yeah 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 we're the ones that were pushing behind the scenes yeah, you guys need to be yeah. doing this man talk <laughs> universal there's shit they're not even paying attention to man and they wanted us to they wanted us to to actually do this podcast as an extra on the DVD on the Blu-ray and we said <laughs> no we, we're we artists no. we don't compromise we're no, not going to no sell compromise, out yeah. especially if you're not going to you know acquiesce to all of our demands <laughs> yeah, I think right. you know there are things that we want you to do mm-hmm. and if you're not if you're not willing to do them and do them in the nude it's ridiculous we're yeah. not going to talk to you it's, yeah. it's, it's over <laughs> I should give you kind of a behind the scenes look at how we negotiate with you know Mondo Macabro and yeah. Severin you know there's nudity involved people every time it's just the with way Vinegar Syndrome we just said we wanted free copies of all their films that would have been rated X at the time they came out. And they just, they, they, that's, that's where the negotiations ended. Yeah. They looked at us like we were fools, <laughs> yeah. slammed the door in our faces, moved on with their lives. Right. <laughs> Man, we live in a... Speaking of fantasy lives, let's, just, let's talk about this bullshit we're spending now. <laughs> Nevertheless, folks, remember, uh, write us if you want to be included in the mailbag episode, thebloodypit at gmail.com. And uh, next time, Troy and I sit down to talk about a movie. It should be the next in the Universal Horrors lineup. And my God, it's one that I cannot wait Mm. to defend. Although it turns out that I'm not the only one Mm. willing to defend this film. We'll be talking about Son of Dracula. Indeed. How do you feel? Do you want to defend it? Uh, You know, it's... 
My here's the thing I'm really looking forward to this film because this is not a film that I have overseen of the Universal horror movies yeah, because it did yeah. not play as a kid when I was growing up. You know, it did not it not play on t- it never made the TV rounds oh, until okay. until uh, uh, I mean, gosh, I mean, I probably didn't see it until my teenage years. You know, and 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 on the UHF is when it finally finally showed up, and even then, not that much. And so, just it's a film that I have not even seen it in in several years, and so. It's a film that I've always enjoyed, as I recall. You know, it's right. it's it's. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to seeing it because I've probably, on the whole, in my I've probably seen it. Just you know, I could probably count on one hand the number of times I've actually watched it, which oh, is okay. which is an odd thing to say for a Universal monster movie. Not because I didn't like the film, but it's just for whatever reason I've just just gone long periods of time between each viewing. So yeah, I'm 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 interested in seeing how it's going to hit me this time around. It is an interesting entry because it really does kind of stand apart and on its own. Yeah, but I think but, you're much, right much, that it's much repu- like Dracula's daughter. Does, right, exactly. Yeah. But I think you're right that I think it's great. It's its reputation is kind of gradually growing as the yes, years go is. by. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I think over the years, some uh, there's been an attitude shift on that film, and mm. I think that. Mm. Uh, Think that I am part of that attitude shift. I think I'm right. I'm right. I'm riding that wave. I have been for a while. But uh, folks, that's what we'll be talking about next time. We would like to thank you very much for listening to mm-hmm. us here. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we will talk to you again very soon. <laughs>